Okay. Do you want to do you want to jump into this? My body is ready. <laughs> Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Miniash Brodsky. I'm Stephen Zuber. And today we're addressing things that we've wanted to address for a while but haven't gotten around to just yet. Such as? Such as the fact that it is the two-week anniversary of Petrov Day! Yay! I so, feel like a complete idiot because we actually, I, we didn't realize when we were recording, but our last episode came out on Petrov Day, which would have been a fantastic time to oh, like yeah. talk about Petrov Day. So why don't you go over what Petrov Day is, then I'll say my one disappointing thing about it. Okay. Then, or why don't I put that up first before I forget. I heard the whole story is apocryphal. Uh, It's not... So it's a great, like, yeah. you know, the apple fell on Newton's head kind of story. But no, no. I mean, it may not be as dramatic as it was first portrayed to be, but, like, that actually happened. Oh, that's, that yeah, there it was... must have, because he was actually fired. Yeah, yeah. Was, Okay, yeah, so he's the, an actual dude who exists. Something yes, like this happened. The, I mean, there was an actual uh, false, false, what do you call it, false positive, I guess, right. of, of missiles being launched. Oh. And he actually didn't uh, retaliate as, as he was instructed to. I think what I read was that it's possible that this wouldn't have, that retaliation wouldn't have occurred even right. if he had confirmed, like if he had said go for it. Yeah. No, um, no, no. There's, so I that, mean, that's certainly possible. But the point is the buck stopped with him and it might not have if he hadn't stopped it. Exactly. Okay. I mean, so there's, there's another situation during the Cuban Missile Crisis where uh, a, 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 sub, a submarine lieutenant, Arkhipov, refused to turn the key when his uh, supervisor on the sub ordered him to, to launch the nuke. And, I mean, that also might not have been a nuke launching because there were other people on the sub too, and it, it may not have, it may not have, you know, resulted in a launch and a nuclear war, but it was good that he stopped it where he did. Totally. So let's let's uh, go over the brief history of Petrov Day. Oh, Petrov Day is um, on this day, not actually this day, uh, September 26th of two, oh God. I don't, I don't remember what year it was. 1883. Or 1983. <laughs> okay. On September 26th of 1983, uh, the Soviet Union was informed that the U.S. had launched a first strike nuclear salvo at them. And uh, it turned out later to be the case that this was actually sunlight reflecting off clouds and dinging the, pinging the Russian satellites that were watching for, this, uh, for a nuclear launch. But it looked like a nuclear launch to them. And there was chaos and alarms going off, and um, this uh, guy Stanislav Petrov was ordered to fire his nukes at the at the Americans, as is standard procedure for when you're under a massive nuclear attack. And he did not do so. He decided that uh, all things considered, he didn't want to destroy the human race. And given various, uh, I'm not going to get into the whole details here because you know we want to. We want to get into the rest of the episode, uh, but we will link to the entire story if anyone's interested. Uh, there were other clues as well that when he saw them, he was like, this doesn't quite feel right to me. I'm not sure this is actually a nuclear attack. And uh, he didn't launch the missiles. And uh, as a result, the entire human race is saved. And as Stephen just said, it may not have resulted in a nuclear launch anyway. There, there was like another layer of precaution. But the important part, the important part is that he did stop the chain at him uh when he had the ability to do so and he eventually lost his he was fired he lost his uh, military pension and all that and uh that's that's what he got for saving the human race and so we like to celebrate this day as a day when we all try not to destroy the human race and to thank those of who are in a greater position to not do so and you know, remember how fragile life is, and hope that someday he will be as well known as, like, you know, a Kardashian or one of the other celebrities that everyone seems to know. 
Yeah, because think of all everything the Kardashians have given us. Right. We want to at least put Stanislav Petrov up there. Right. So, yeah. At least as much as, you know, really nice butt pictures. And I think instead of linking to the Wikipedia page on Petrov Day, I'm going to link to the XKCD that explains Petrov Day. Okay. Or, I mean, um, we should also link to the original Less Wrong post, which started the Petrov Day tradition. That works, too. Yeah. Um, that might actually be linked in here somewhere, because there's, there's one of the explained ones, like a few paragraphs underneath. Mm-hmm. But the picture's funny, as always. Yeah. And it's somebody reading their phone and she's like hey wednesday was stanislav petrov day we missed it and he says oh shoot i've got a calendar alert for it but i assumed it was a false alarm (laughs) (laughs) very appropriate joke totally and because we also missed it yeah yeah it's it's great it's true couldn't be better no and then the title text is i was going to get you an alarm clock that occasionally goes off randomly randomly in the middle of the night but you can ignore it and go back to sleep and it's fine (laughs) okay so um, uh, did you hear about the um, uh, Petrov Day celebration that w- <laughs> went wrong? I hope it didn't go as wrong as Petrov Day couldn't. Well, what, I'm trying to make a pun here about Petrov Day not happening. So, right. no, I didn't hear about it. Okay, so there, since there are you know a number of rationalists around the world at this point, uh, and this literally is really dozens of us. Yes, <laughs> literally dozens. And this is a kind of a our only holiday. Uh, there's some people that, uh, well, I guess there's also the solstice celebration, but this is one of the big ones. Uh, there, there's a number of people that got together and have had Petrov Day parties. And there is a game that some of the groups play where two parties will link to each other uh, via server or some other method. In this case, they use the server. And in each party, there's a big red button. And if someone in one party pushes the big red button, then the party that they're linked to across the nation or across, you know, wherever the other party is, has to immediately shut down, douse the fire because there's a, a, you know, traditional fire going, throw away their cake, and everyone goes home. Like, the party's over. It's the equivalent of launching a party nuke, right? And uh, they both managed to not press the button at all for the required amount of time. I think the, the game went on for like four hours or something. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't sound that hard. Yeah. It was uh, Seattle and Oxford that were playing. Then again, you know, war, not shooting, not launching nukes doesn't sound that hard either. So. Well, here's the funny thing. Uh, there were a few times where there were false alarms launched, you know, uh, to, to simulate the uncertainty of shit happening. And like, oh, no, they launched us and they didn't retaliate and everything was okay. Uh, once the game was over... Uh, the one of the people in Seattle touched the button on the screen, just be like, haha, timer's over, let's just, you know, touch it, whatever. Uh, their computer and the server weren't synced completely, perfectly. Mm. They touched it literally one second after the timer ended on their end, but for the server, it would still had a few seconds left. And so Oxford was, um, was told that the nuke had been launched. Uh, on the plus side, Oxford did not retaliate. That's nice. Yeah. So only half the world was destroyed. That's about that, that's about as wholesome of an example of like nuclear war that I can think of. So. Yeah. That's that's also kind of like appropriate in that it shows just how easy it is through technical glitches to accidentally destroy the world, you know? I mean, it's not it's not quite the same level of 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 problems that we have, but it's it was a great demonstration of exactly that problem. Like mm-hmm. these, there's lights shining off clouds or there's there's a uh, warning depth charges going off, which you don't realize are only warning depth charges, or uh, or someone pushes a button one second after the game is over and things are out of sync. Womp. Yeah. Hey, that's cool though. I love it. Yeah. And I'll I'll post. Uh, we'll post a link to that as well. Totally. So, I had a quick. Um, we've had a little bit of, of feedback on the AMA thread that's sitting on Reddit. If anyone ever wants to hit that. Um, 
One here from uh, Chibatron, which is one that we need to do a whole episode on. I just wanted to acknowledge that we've seen it because okay. uh, it came in 25 days ago, and all I did was like it. So okay. um, uh, basically, are there any guides or how-tos for practicing rationality in everyday life? Mm. So there's uh, it, it goes on to give some examples and things that they're looking for. Um, but basically, we haven't done – I think we inject a little bits and pieces here or there, like living like a rationalist ought to live or tries to live or something. Mm-hmm. But that sounds, that sounds like something we need to cover in depth at some point so yeah we'll get some kick-ass rationalist on here to uh give us some example of course uh, another kick-ass rationalist right, I right, say. right right of course um and then chlorine crown and i are going to keep talking via um private message here on reddit but i wanted to bring up the public one because there's a generalizable lesson in it so um and they wrote in three hours ago so i have the huge difference between uh chlorine crown and uh chibatron here we didn't forget about you chibatron but we uh well, we didn't forget, forget, but it slipped our minds. Um, <laughs> so, um, Chlorine Crown said, uh, I'm thinking I want to change jobs and become a coder. And I remember you said you did it and it was easier than you expected. What was your path like? So I gave a quick response here because I did it via phone, but um, I'll go over it really quick and then I'll, I'll talk about why it's generalizable. So, you know, obviously advice is hard and your mileage may vary. And just to calibrate expectations, when I said I thought it would, I thought it would be like inventing calculus hard and not just like tons of work hard. Um, cause I mean, before I got into anything computers, I assumed it was just some, you know, black box of arcane knowledge that, you know, what you couldn't get into unless you were coding your own games while you're still in diapers and stuff. And it turns out it's like, oh no, it's human readable. And if, if I can do it, anybody can do it. So it's a skill like any other. Yeah, totally. But uh, I think, and this is actually, this is the second generalizable lesson that, and this is something that I had to learn over and over getting into the field is that. There's this sense, at least for me, and it wasn't uncommon um, among other entry-level people, of just like, holy shit, I can't do this. This is too much. You know, what do I do? I've never seen a problem like this before. Mm-hmm. Um, the key is just to get over that. Like, everybody feels that way to start off, and it's totally normal. So you just need to find good strategies for getting over that that challenge. And I feel like that's true for a lot of things. So anyway, um, if anyone wants to look at programming and never has before, there's a free book online called uh, Automate the Boring Stuff, which is a Python tutorial. Um, if you hate that, you'll hate coding. And if you find it fun and interesting, you might like it. So that's your, that's my first step I'd recommend to somebody, which was recommended to me by one of our guests on the show, uh, Zeke Aran, who, uh, um, really got me into all this stuff. So thanks buddy. Cool. And, uh, let's see. So the other, the other lesson, or I guess the, the thing that related to it is like, I don't know any car stuff at all or really any repairs of anything, but like me getting into coding was, I think my first example, uh, or my first real Eh, one of my first real serious attempts at instead of the the rationalist um, uh, motto of like shut up and do the impossible, mm-hmm. mine is just like shut up and actually try. Okay. Because um, almost nothing's as hard as it as at least as I think it is. Maybe you know I think some other people have anxiety about stuff too, but it's more just like I'll look at some problem and just assume oh it must be really hard, you know mm-hmm. otherwise I'd know how to do it. But why would that be the case? Right. So, like try figure it out especially if the cost to entry is low so you know i'm gonna go to uh, work on my i'm gonna re- well my brother's gonna help me well rather he's gonna do all of it and he's gonna i'm gonna get to help him um replace my pads and uh probably my rotors on my car cool because um, i don't know how to do it yeah. and you know if i i'm kind of he knows what he's doing so we're gonna we're gonna do it and i'm gonna get some practice but it's just like a little thing of you know i was like i could take it to a shop and get this taken care of he's like no nah, dude screw that you know it's 30 bucks for pads you know 25 bucks for rotors like let's just you know let's save you 300 dollars. so that's um, awesome yeah it's great but i guess you know it's just a little thing of i 
have yet to come into something that I guess I haven't tried that very, very, that many very hard things, but most things that I've thought of like, oh, that's too hard. I'm not going to try. They're not that hard and you should try. And then if you can't do it, then it's like, all right, let's, let's outsource and get some help or something or whatever it is. But yeah. think things are doable. Everyone's got this. So <laughs> I think before you shut up and do the impossible, you should shut up and actually try. Nice. That's going to be my, my motto for the, for the episode. It's good. Good motto. Yeah. And it still sounds a lot easier too. Oh. I'm all about that easy path. Uh, I got a quick feedback from Christopher James on our Patreon. Cool. He commented actually on the Patreon post, which was really neat. I was like, hey, awesome. I don't think I've seen this before. Uh, Chris James, Christopher James says, uh, could the intellectual dark web be a good example of owning bad associations? Uh, according to Eric Weinstein, the nature of the moniker is intentionally cringeworthy and jocular so as to preemptively get the jeering out of the way or at least put it on the table. Uh, I don't know if you guys think this approach has any merit in the context of spreading rationality, but I couldn't help but notice the similarities during the episode when both came up. And yeah, I was actually soylent. I thought it had the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Because when it first, uh, the guy was first talking about it on his blog, and he was like, I would really like this this product where I just like dump nutrition and calories into my mouth and keep can continue going on my day, you know? I don't want to waste time cooking. I don't want to waste time cleaning. I don't particularly care about food that much. I just want fuel so I can focus on what I want to focus on. And first of all, I thought that was fucking brilliant and I loved the entire concept of it. But yeah, he he knew that people were going to have the reaction that they often do and compare it immediately to Soylent. And he's like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm calling it Soylent. I'm going <laughs> to lean real hard into it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now we all have Soylent, which we love. Yeah, I like that. And I think to, to Christopher's point, I think I think there could be, but luckily... Maybe luckily, depends on the audience. Rational, rationality slash rationalists doesn't have the same immediate connotation that intellectual dark web has. I think it depends on if you've run into the term before. It's definitely like, like anyone said, who's it's, run it's, into rationalist before has some kind of pre-existing ideas. Maybe, right. well, I maybe think, not. I don't know. Well, I think, like I said, it's it's not. It's it depends on the audience. Some yeah. people definitely do, and you'll just be like, you know what, fine, mm -hmm. and you'll you can run with it. And I like it to that. I think. Um, I think what he's saying is like dark web is, you know, the place where you go to get drugs and child porn and stuff, right? And so intellectual dark web is just putting it out there like, yeah, a lot of people hate us and think that we're spreading shitty things, but we're just talking about stuff. We're just we're just ones who are who are gonna not be afraid to tackle the hard subjects and right. um you know, and then there's that article that came out that was like that really got this around. And I'm not sure if Weinstein invented the term or made it up on Harris's podcast, or if they discussed it shortly after, and that's where it kicked off. But he was on the, he was, they were on doing a live event together. Okay. And uh, and for those who couldn't see, because that would be everyone except for me, Stephen was like making sarcastic hand gestures when he said tackle the tough subjects. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You guys can't see my gestures. Um, I hoped to convey air quotes. Th I guess, yeah, the other main difference is that rationality and rationalism didn't start as a joke. Right. Um, and this didn't really start... Well, the name started as a joke. Yeah. But I do see where they're coming from. And yeah, to, to lean into that doesn't sound, you know... I certainly don't think... If anything, this is definitely a case for not bothering to try and find a new name or something. Um, which I, I can get behind. So, um, I like that. Cool. Yeah. No, thanks for writing that. Yeah. Uh, I think I had one more... Listener feedback, if we wanted to hit that before we jump into the rest of this show. Yeah, totally. Um, Hanky USA says, I have ADHD, which requires me to employ large amounts of productivity tricks. Uh, we, this is a back to our productivity episode a little while ago, and we will be having a part two at some point soon. Um, Hanky says, I easily feel overwhelmed by small tasks or big tasks that have a clear and easy to apply solution. Pomodoro helps address this overwhelming feeling. 
I tell myself I will work on it for X amount of time and then I will take a break. I focus on that block and forget everything else. I just kind of sprint through the task without letting my emotional brain time to think about what an imposter I am or how I'm bound to fail. This works for tasks that would be overwhelming. If you find yourself saying, I'll just do one self-indulging distraction before I get to work on that thing that gives me anxiety to think about, then perhaps you should respond, I'll just work on it some benign amount of time before I enjoy a short bit of self-indulgence. Which is where the timer helps. Um, and sometimes when the timer goes off, it's like, yeah, I'm indulging right now, this is awesome! And other times, just keeps going for a little bit longer anyway. They do mention that another way to help deal with the feeling of overwhelmingness is to break projects down into smaller components. And just keep getting the smaller and smaller and smaller components until you get to one you can do. Uh, I actually heard that as a good way of dealing with depression too. Like, if you can't quite tackle the task of, like, getting out and, and getting food or something, break it up into, like, okay, I'm just going to get dressed. And if that's too much, you're like, okay, I'm just going to get out of bed. And if that's too much, it's like, okay, I'm just going to roll over onto my side and just keep going for the smallest possible task until you can actually accomplish that. I think that's a good way to achieve really any goal. But certainly if you if you have a huge motivation problem, um, I think I mentioned before, like one little thing I do is since now I have stairs in my place, if something belongs upstairs or downstairs and I see it on the floor I'm on, mm-hmm. I never make a trip empty handed. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is, you know, I'll, I'll try and tell myself like, all right, well, I need to get around to doing these dishes. For now, I'll just do the one on the top of the pile. I tend to like, I like doing the dishes. So I tend to just dive into it and finish them because it's one thing that I can get through and then see it clean and done, you know, five minutes later. And, you know, whereas everything else, you know, a lot of other chores don't really work that way. So I tend to do do most of the dishes because I find it rewarding and I get to like clean myself as I'm doing it. So like garbage, I hate handling. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to derail too much there. No, that that was cool too. They also say time limits can also help with perfectionism and completionism. Uh, I tell myself that I will do something for only so long and set the timer. I don't feel at liberty to obsess or doing everything just right. Once again, I'm sprinting, which is actually a really good point because lots of times I can get wrapped up like in perfectionism and I'm like, okay, this thing is not quite right. I got to gotta go back and adjust it a little and then keep going back and forth and I lose a lot of time that way. So yeah. if you got just that sprint time that you have to work on, it can help quite a bit. That's a good point. And, you know, perfectionism where it's needed but mm. everywhere else, it's like, fuck it, good enough is good enough. Yeah. yeah. And then their final tip is separate planning and doing. It's hard to make the right decision in the heat of the moment. Trying to decide what you should do now is the moment you are most likely to make the choice that you would otherwise recognize to, to be wrong. Make plans for future you. Make plans for future you to execute so future you won't have to think about it or decide in that moment. When it's time to execute, execute the plan past you made, just submit to their will. They know better than you. I like that a lot. And I've done that too, where I make pre-commitments to my future self in the conscientiously minded moment. Also a lot of like these, you know, divide up your tasks, plan ahead and that sort of thing. That makes its way into like good, um, like good lean development, whether you're working in software or like an assembly line, all that same sort of stuff of, uh, you know, get a small task, you know, get as perfect as as possible, plan ahead, that sort of stuff. Um, So if if you find that interesting, there's a great book on... The history of lean that I can't remember the name of. So, or who wrote it? But uh, you can probably go to the Wikipedia page for lean, L E A N, I guess lean development, and look at basically like Toyota and um, other car companies invented this sort of stuff as like their assembly line deal. So, okay. Um, oh, oh yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's dope. Um, like this was coming out with the the introduction of like industrial organizational psychology, where instead of just like, well, this will probably work, and that's just what people did since the industrial revolution. It's like, wait. 
what if we actually check to see what would work? Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out that when you do that, you can, you know, build what a bomber every 24 hours um, on a, on a mile long assembly line Damn. Um, during world war two, you know, cool stuff like that. So, well, as cool as bombers are, but the, the feet is really cool. So yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, bombers are not simple things. No, totally. Although I guess in world war two, they were less complex than they are now. But just think of the, 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 size. the, the size, the size of the finished products, but also the complexity of a mile long assembly line, keeping everything stocked along the way and having everyone doing their little part as it moves through is that's pretty cool. All right. Yeah. Do we want to hit our main topic? So I don't have much else to go on before we dive into the main topic, which I'm actually excited about because you, you sent this over, what, like a week and a half ago? Uh-huh. And um, it's it's long. It but is. It's, but it's not as long. It doesn't feel as long as it is. Right. And uh, I'm actually eager to go back and read it again. But luckily, we took great notes. So we've got uh, stuff to go into here that hopefully will give you enough of an insight to determine whether or not you want to read this. Yeah. I suspect many of you will. So we'll link to Mimetic Tribes and the Culture War. 2.0. 2.0. Yeah, the Culture War 2.0. This was a... I don't even remember how I got linked to this article. But I find this a fantastic summary of everything that's happening right now and um, being able to put things in, in terms of actually looking at them and getting a handle of on what's happening was really valuable to me. Plus it uses all the nerdy lingo that we know and love yes. and it really, it really sings to that part of my, my spirit. So yeah, the guys who wrote this are definitely rationalist adjacent in some way. Yeah. Peter Lindbergh and Connor Barnes are the, are the authors. So it is, uh, as it sounds like an article examining the current culture war, and trying to make some sense of it, give some history of what happened, and maybe a few suggestions about what we can do going forward. So we don't have the culture war defined in our notes here, but I'm going to just take a, a pot shot guess, and that it's how fucked up everything is uh, interacting with your fellow humans today. Yeah. Is, it, that, a, is that a fair summary? It's, it, well, I mean, I, there is actually an, um, a definition in here, but yes, it's, it's basically everything we see around each other right now. Yeah. I the wanted. reason that you can't chat with anyone about anything anymore. Yeah. Oh, and there is there is definition here. Yeah, I was just being uh, kind of flippant because it doesn't take a a sociologist or a or a social psychologist to notice that things are not like they used to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even that old, so like uh -oh. if I'm noticing it, it's it's got to be something, right? right? So, and they they paint a really good history of of where things got to this point just from like the last uh, basically five years. Well, I guess seven. Ten. Yeah, ten. I think ten years at this point. Was it wait two thousand one or two thousand eleven? Uh, 2008 when did, is when the financial collapse happened. But 2011 was their first big event when the Occupy thing fell through because their okay. mission statement was we're unhappy. Okay. Um, yeah. Not trying to be disingenuous, but, and well, then again, I can't trust the Colbert Report as like, you know, the, the best source <laughs> of anything, but other than making me laugh, yeah. but he had on two leaders from the movement on the show yeah. or he went and interviewed them or something, you know, he was like, so what is it that you guys want? And they didn't really have an answer. And it's like, so what, what is, what is, uh, what's, what's the grievance? And they're just like, rich people have too much money. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. That's true. But that's not like, that doesn't have an attainable goal at the end of it other than like, can, you know, fuck you guys. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not really like an objective. <laughs> Right. But anyway, I'm sure that there's much more to it, but that was my... All right, if I'm this tired early on, i got to get myself in gear. I'm going <laughs> to okay. stand up and stretch really quick. All right, no problem. Yeah, we're jumping ahead a little bit. So stepping back just a bit, the article is called Mimetic Tribes and Culture War, and so they think it's probably important to define both Mimetic Tribe and Culture War near the top. Anything that uses the word Mimetic almost always has me immediately hooked. Nice. Uh, so they define Mimetic Tribe as a group of 
Goop. A goop. <laughs> a group of agents with a memeplex that directly or indirectly seeks to impose its distinct map of reality, along with its moral imperatives, upon other minds. Uh, memeplex is basically what it sounds like. If you know what meme is, it's it's the... It's an ideology. It's, yeah, it's this... Exactly. Ideology is a good word yeah. for it. Yeah, that works. So but memeplex t- is more fun to say. Yeah, to put, to put it in... Yeah, it, it definitely is. Well, I mean, and it, it I think points more directly to what an ideology is it's a group of individual memes that are interwoven to be self-perpetuating right and and self-reinforcing and having meme in the name of what they're talking about really paints the picture of this is because they they talk about um we talked about tristan harris uh, and i'm jumping around but Mm. we'll we'll get in order Mm. they talk about tristan harris uh his um you worked at the google ethicist the google um something ethicist yeah um about how our attention isn't really under our control that much anymore mm-hmm. um due to uh our attention is the new scarce resource that everyone's fighting over yeah and our we're our constantly we're constantly being hijacked uh with you know mimetic invasions or parasites if you want to call them that right yeah. so and i'll, oh, I'll, I'll stop uh, de- derailing us and just in case there's a uh, confusion here we're using meme not in the colloquial term of a funny image but meme in the traditional definition of an idea that it reproduces itself yeah, that's actually all right. Last derail. Well, who am I kidding? My last derail <laughs> for the next 90 seconds. Um, my first exposure to the word meme was like a couple years before it got popular, mm-hmm. uh, before the word meme was mem- memified in common culture. It was from Richard Dawkins. I think he's the one who, he didn't coin the, the word. But I he believe popu- he is the one who coined it. He, he says he's not. He, oh, he's he, not. Okay. he popularized it Definitely. Um, in 1975 with his book, The Selfish Gene. And he was looking for an example of um, something that could mutate and it was basically an allegory for, for evolutionary change. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather than, than uh, have its um, chain go down through generations, it goes across populations. And he said, I could have done computer virus if those were around back then, but it happened to be memes and that took off. Yeah. And now memes is any picture with captions under it or whatever you want. So, yeah. All right. Ready to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically in, in easier terms, it's, a group of people with an ideology that want to spread the ideology. And I'm going to, I just, I got several quotes out of here that I just dropped in and I'm more, more or less going to read them as exactly as they appear. The new mimetic tribes share to varying degrees, a few characteristics. Most are unscrupulously optimistic in quotes, meaning they see social problems as soluble through large scale adjustment. They see themselves as spokespeople for larger groups, whether that be regular folk or the marginalized. At the same time, they see their existence or their prime value as under threat. They do battle both online and off, and crucially, their mimetic warfare is just as much about firing up members and creating converts out of non-combatants as it is about winning particular battles. And they did a great job putting this line near the top. Because this summarizes exactly what we were trying to, you know, when I was throwing out a bullshit definition of culture war, right? Yeah. This is exactly what's happening. And then I was, because we were, we were both adding notes to this throughout the day, and I was going to add that exact quote, and then I saw that you already did. Cool. So I added, the next, I added the next short paragraph, which I thought was just as good, and it was part of what I was going to add. So I'll try and read that one. Well, everyone vote who likes who's reading voice more. <laughs> I already know who's going to win. So the next line... Uh, from the perspective of the tribal memeplex, the ideal host exists in a state of permanent agitation and interprets all phenomena through the memeplex's filter. In short, a paranoid ideologue. Memeplexes that have not agitated their hosts into reproducing them will lose out to those who do. There's only so much room inside your head, and ideology expands to fill the available space. Yeah, that was also a damn good quote. Yeah, it was great. Uh, they then define culture war as the mimetic war to determine what the social facts are at the core of a given society 
or to determine society's boundaries of the sacred and the profane. And uh, since social fact was not a term familiar to me, I looked at it, or I looked it up rather, a social fact is a way of acting, whether fixed or not, capable of exerting over the individual an external constraint. Luckily, they linked to the Wikipedia definition of that word in the article because I had to click it too. So, yeah. And it's things like uh, the concepts of marriage or of kinship or honor or things that, you know, things that are not physical facts about the world, but they are social realities which constrain how you can behave. I saw this as a probably weak example, but it's appropriate. Uh, there was a change my view thread on Reddit in the last day or two. Someone was complaining about tipping. This comes up like once a month. Yeah, yeah. Tipping shouldn't be a thing. Tipping's a good one. And everyone's like, it's not obligatory. The poster is like, but it kind of is. Yeah, totally. And is. it's like, yeah, exactly. It is. You're an asshole if you don't. That's the social truth. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it's not required. They will, in theory, be paid minimum wage. Though if you know any service workers who may live on tips, they definitely almost are never paid out minimum wage if they don't make enough. Yeah. So it's uh, it's one of those things like, um, I was going to make an example from a movie, but it's not important. So moving on. And yeah, I, you do see them changing quite a lot too. Uh, just a few years ago, as I was reading a book, which came out not too long ago, where uh, the word retarded is used quite a bit because back then it was still okay to say it was like yeah how do you how do you refer to something that's really lame or stupid like, ah, that's retarded dude now you can't say that anymore yeah actually fun fact about that and i'll need to double check but i'm i'm confident enough to put this on the air and go on the record for saying this i know somebody who uh is in their 60s and they're, they live with their their adult sister who is mentally retarded that was her diagnosis because she's in her 50s mm-hmm. and so when she was diagnosed with retardation 50 years ago because she was a child when she was diagnosed um, that rode through up until sometime during the Obama administration. And when they, when that was removed as like a legal diagnosis, they removed her benefits. Oh and shit. So, because that's not, that's not what we call it anymore. So she's better now. Right. Oh um, God. so they got, they, they, they got her back on, but there was a few, few hairy months where, um, there was nothing coming through to help support the care, the full-time care that she needs or anything like that. So oh. That was kind of interesting. Wow. Yeah. So not only can you not say it, but you also can't legislate it anymore. <laughs> right. Wow. Which I'm, I'm in favor of that. It's, you know, language policing is, is iffy. And this article talks about Jordan Peterson and his firm stance on that. But at the same time, I'm a big fan of this sort of my general policy on language policing. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, I'll be descriptive in a way that's not asshole-ish if I can. And if I'm told it's asshole-ish by somebody who is an authority on the subject. I'll change my, my general descriptors, mm-hmm. but in person, I'll, I'll say whatever someone wants, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, I think we talked about the word black before as okay. like, as the term is like black American, uh, as well, as opposed to native or, um, uh, African American. Yeah. And I, I always said black American cause not all Africans are, are black. Mm-hmm. Not, all, not all, not all black people are from Africa. Mm-hmm. And it always struck me as weird to say, Oh, you're black. You must be from Africa. And this kind of like weird, like, you know, you're not from here since, okay. which you don't do that with, you know, other white people or even other, like not black people. You don't do, um, you know, Mexican American or Puerto Rican American for the most part. I, I think you do do Mexican. Some people you, do, you do if, American if they're from Mexico, right, right, right. But not if they're not, if they've been here for 300 years. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's the, that's the part that always irked me. But if someone in person wants me to call them African American, I'm all over it. And I'm not going to protest them. Yeah. But uh, then my other joke. I'm sorry, I'm derailing us too yeah, much. Go for it. Elon Musk is African American, right? He's oh, from South, he's Africa. from South Africa. Yeah. So on paper, yeah. and then there's that person who applied to college a few years ago, mm-hmm. also from South South Africa, I think, okay. and she got um, affirmative action benefit, you know, perks for applying to different colleges. And when she got there and she was white, there was some kickback. Oh. Um, but she was African American. Her family was from Africa. Yeah. Uh, 
so I know someone personally who uh, I'm not going to give out name here because she wants to put this whole thing behind her. Um, but uh, she wrote a number of stories which were well received and she used a pen name and the pen name she used was the nickname that her grandmother called her. Uh, and she is uh, was actually born in uh, South Africa. Her parents are South African, but they're the Dutch South African. They're white. And her parents, interestingly, uh, fought against apartheid like hardcore and were eventually stripped of, I think, most of their possessions and kicked out of the country uh, for, for their uh, fight against apartheid. But uh, anyways, she had a nickname that her grandma called her. She used it as her pen name. And the nickname, I mean, it, it's just, it's a... It's a collection of vowels and consonants and stuff that you just call a kid when they're all cute and young. But it kind of sounds like it could be sort of African and like a, a African ethnic sort of name. Would giving away the name describe tell who you're talking about? Possibly. Okay, that's yeah. fine. And, uh, and she comes from South Africa. And like she didn't ever make a big deal about this. She just wrote some stories. But at one point, uh, a anthology contacted her and was like, hey, we'd like to include your story in our anthology of African-American writers. And she was like, that's totally cool. Uh, you can do that if you'd like, but just so you know, I'm white. Uh, and she explained the situation, and there was like a scandal. People were like, "How dare you represent yourself as 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 black and use this ethnic name?" And she was like, "No, th this was what my grandma called me." And yeah, and she abandoned that pen name, and it's just that's never gonna up. write under that name again. Yeah, that's lame. No yeah. one made you feel bad. I I agree, and I mean that was really shitty. But yeah, that actually that sort of thing can and does happen. Man, that sucks. Yeah. Anyway, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no. Getting back onto the language thing, I don't know. I I I agree that you know, words like gay or retard are bad and hurt people, but you know. It feels weird because there's always going to be insults, and insults are going to be like calling people weak or calling people stupid, right? Yeah. And so people who actually are those things are going to feel bad, and I mean... Well, you can't say stupid anymore either. Oh, you can't say stupid now? You can't say stupid, you can't say crazy. Yeah, I knew you couldn't say crazy. That well, was crazy, the one I was about to crazy bring Crazy actually bugs me. Well, okay, we're way far afield. Yeah, but and the, I'm, the I'm, loss of crazy bugs me too. Some well, ideas are genuinely crazy, and I think you should be able to call them crazy. And especially in a way that isn't pejorative. Because yeah. what else can you say? Uh, to, to, to deliver what you're trying to say. There was that guy who wrote a book a couple years ago. He was on Julia Gayless' podcast, and this wasn't the point of why he was on, but they, they he changed the name of the book. Mm. It was How to Think Like a Crazy Philosopher, mm. which conveys exactly what the guy was writing, writing the, what was the ideas in this book. Mm. And I don't know what he changed the name to, but you know it wasn't going to be... It, it wouldn't convey the same shorthand message. That's part of the problem with euphemistic language in the first place, is that it's almost necessarily... First of all, it almost, it's almost necessarily more syllables, which is annoying, right. um, but it's, it's, it's v m more vague and less, less clear and... and uh, well, and it'll, it'll always spread. I mean, when I was a kid, the, uh, the term that you used for intellectually disabled people was special. They were, you know, they were special kids. And uh, then that became used as an insult because everyone would be like, oh, you're one of those special kids, aren't you? And like whatever the term is for someone who has that disability, it's always going to get turned into an insult. Well, special isn't okay to say anymore. I don't know what is because <laughs> some things are special and awesome. Yeah. But yeah. It, again, it depends on whether or not you put a, a, a sting on it, right? Right. There was a, a, a famous comic who must not be named who had a joke about um, that Jew is the one like de ethnic group that is both the accepted term and the pejorative term, depending on how you say it. Yeah. yeah. And uh if you know you can you can put you can put a, if you can put a bad spin on special you can do it to literally anything right so yeah 
Yeah. There, there. I just reminds me of that um, this American Life episode where there's a Jewish producer and he's talking to one of his coworkers, and the coworker would not use the term Jew around him. He's like, "But I'm a Jew," and he's like, "It's okay for you to say it. It just, it just doesn't <laughs> feel right to say." Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we're not going to say the other word that it's no. that, that other people that you you know even if given permission to say you might feel weird about saying. So, yeah. All right. I was going to try and just buy myself a ticket to the intellectual dark web by volunteering it, but I, I really want to earn that that seat. So yeah. we'll have to take a dark picture in the bushes outside. That's right. All right. You, you got to earn this. No free cheap tickets for you, sir. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> All right. Getting back into the, uh, the article, we will go through the summary of parts. Uh, they, they identify six things that have brought us to where we are now. Do we want to name what they are in broad strokes really quick and then go into each of them in, in detail uh um, no because i always forget lists like that i say we just go through them one at a time let's do it there are six yes. if you lose count there's six okay uh the first is the secularization and meaning crisis the did you want to read that first line since you put those in yeah i'll read the short ones i'll read the long ones okay Be a good trade-off the secularization and meaning crisis um the meaning crisis weakened our collective understanding of what ought to be, is the short summary. And the longer quote I pulled out was, Secularization theories predict an untethering of religious authority from society would bring about a widespread embrace of rational and scientific worldview. And let me just pause right here. God, I'm so sad that didn't happen. <laughs> like, I see those, like, kind of steampunk era. I know it's not steampunk, but like, Enlightenment era people, they're like, yes, we are finally overcoming the shackles of religion, and now everybody is going to be, you know scientific and the progress of man and now we are enlightened and god it just it didn't happen it just ran for new ran for new shackles yeah, yeah. and it was oh because you you think you know i would have thought anyway i would have been one of those people i was like yes we're breaking free luckily but, we're, both, we're both perfectly sane so oh yeah right yeah. obviously uh it continues uh nowadays multiple viewpoints compete with christianity for for control over the social narrative because they were saying earlier in the articles christianity used to provide all the meaning all the narrative that ran life, it was the big overarching structure that let you make sense of your life. By and the way, this whole thing is just about the Western world. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, since that's where our culture war is taking place. But I don't, think, I don't think we said that. So. Okay, that's yeah. a good point. But, you know, every, every, every region had their own religion. It was always a religion that did this thing. Totally. Uh, this society-wide secularization has given rise to the meaning crisis, which we define as a meaning famine where numerous contenders are competing to satiate our meaning hunger. So, yeah, now we've got... We're searching for meaning, and instead of finding it, in, finding it in science and rationality, people are scrabbling for, like, crystals and Bigfoots and UFOs and shit. Deepak Chopra-esque spirituality yeah. and that yeah. sort of stuff, yeah. Mimetic tribes offer one solution. A raft to navigate the open seas. Their totalitizing worldviews and the roles they provide are an attempt to satiate the meaning hunger in the meaning famished. And I will just say I totally see that in some of the people that I know that, like, get really into some of these things. It seems to be a lot because they don't have any anything meaningful in their life, and they see this, and they're like, "Yes, I can, I can change society. I can help these people that have been oppressed by the colonizers or whatever," and it becomes their their thing that makes their life mean something, you know. And because everyone needs their life to mean something, right? Otherwise, you sink in depression and smoke pot all day. Why does this sound familiar? Kind of like that that rationality thing I've been hearing a little <laughs> bit about. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um. We'll just, I'll just go ahead and dodge that by saying some rafts are sturdier than others. Mm. All right. But yeah, the step one is the collapse of Christianity that provided meaning to everyone, and now people are searching for meaning. And uh, part two is the fragmentation and reality crisis. 
Um, the reality crisis fractured our collective understanding of what is. And anyone who heard the Sam Harris episode with, uh, who's that comic book or that, that strip comic writer? Oh, Scott Adams. Scott Adams. Um, Dilbert. He was a nightmare to listen to, but this, this, uh, the, um, the, the two example. narratives thing. Yeah, exactly. He brought it this whole, he brought this up exactly. And yeah, the two movie screens. Yeah. And each side can only see one and they're showing a different movie. There you go. And they, they bring up that in the article, but they say it's not, it's worse than that. It's like a Netflix, uh, smorgasbord of things. Not just two used to be kind of just two. Yeah, yeah. Um, now it's 60 and I'm throwing up, making up a number. Yeah. Now so. you can view it through the lens of the, you know, literally anything white supremacists or yeah. The, uh, the, 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 Crazy people who think the lizard men aliens are behind everything. Or is right. that was that the QAnon thing, the lizard men, or were they some other conspiracy? I think lizard men is older. I'm not I mean, sure how old QAnon is, but the QAnon is it, pretty recent. If anyone hit, oh no, QAnon was like the entire Democratic Party is a front for child pedophilia, right? I'll take. I had never actually heard of QAnon before this article, so oh really? Luckily, I live a happily sheltered life. So okay. Uh, speaking of lizard people, though, anyone who's gone through DIA in the last few weeks have n- has noticed that they're under construction, mm-hmm. and their signs are leaning really hard into the conspiracy jokes. It's yeah. great. It's awesome. Uh. The article says, This fragmented array of narratives has caused a reality crisis. For without some semblance of consensus reality, constructive cooperation becomes extremely difficult. This resists in, this results in what Leotard? Le, Leotard? Okay. Uh, in what Leotard calls a different, a situation where conflicting parties cannot even agree on the rules for dispute resolution. Moreover, there is a lack of agreement on what the conflict even is. Collective understanding problems of what reality is amplify collective action problems of what reality should be. And also, grassroots and underground media productions keep the tribes up. Oh, well, actually, let me get to that in a second. But um, yeah, I, I, I thought, I also feel like I've seen that. I have, like, you see the two sides talking about the news issues these days, and they're, like, just radically different. Yeah, it's... Um even so I highlighted the part, a situation where conflicting parties cannot even agree on the rules for dispute resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, it's remarkable, even seeing people try to politely play the middle on some of these that, you know, I would like to think I have through, through practice, I'm above average at reaching across the, polit- the ideological aisle. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I am, I did a good job, you know, of, of keeping a level head in this and just finding things that like we could all agree on. We were, we were debating the, uh, Kavanaugh, I don't know how to say his name. Oh, the, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, the, the the alleged serial rapist that Trump nominated for uh, Supreme Court justice. Who was the we, if I may ask? Oh, uh, co-workers at lunch last okay. Friday. Um, and nobody seemed for it, but one guy who was trying to play the middle too hard was arguing basically how bad it was that this was, you know, being a thing. Because mm. um, his family votes right, and he, you know, thinks... And, you know, he... he I think fairly says, you know, they're not idiots. They think what they think for the right, you know, for, for what seemed to them good reasons. And the guy on my left, so this guy sitting across from me and then the guy on my left is like, nope, our Republicans are stupid. And like, that's his, that's his position. And I'm like, look, you guys, mm-hmm. he's being, you know, the guy across from me, I'm gesturing straight ahead is being more generous. You need to like not paint such a broad brush. Yeah. You know, these people, anyone who, who votes a different way than you is doing for what seemed to them good reasons, mm-hmm. even if their reasons are objectively terrible. They're not just stupid. If that's if that's your explanation, you're not thinking hard enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, just these these you know we're all leftist nerds who all agree. But even like trying, I don't know. Is this this seems like a um, relevant to bring up the ideological Turing test, which uh, I think we talked about before. Yeah, or does yeah. that come up in the later in the post? It does come up later in the post. But oh, you, good, you I skimmed up. a bit. So um, then, if it comes up later, then it's probably more appropriate there. Okay. So we'll save it. The yeah, no, it's it's weird. I have a friend who's like 
kind of on the left. And when the Brett Kavanaugh thing came up before the testimony, he was like, oh, well, looks like the Democratic Party is going to shoot itself in the foot again, per usual. And I'm like, what? Because apparently, like, all his family and a lot of his friend circle are more right-leaning. And they just see, like, Democrats throwing a hissy fit and over over nothing, I guess. <sighs> over, like, someone getting drunk at a party and groping someone drunkenly. I don't even know. I... I it's hard for me to to see it, but yeah, apparently, I guess even if you're they just see this, different things. Yeah, so I mean, one way to view this thing is like all these women are liars, and they're just coming out now just to stir, you know, kick kick mud and and do this. Um, well, I mean, they could, they could think like that they're oversensitive, over exaggerating. Like someone stole a kiss at a party, and they are traumatized for life. That's not what many of these descriptions include. I know, but um, that's what they see. Oh well, uh, that's that's fine. So yeah, if you're if you're gonna like, say if you've, well, if you've ever met someone who does blow things way out of proportion, which I've met one person who does, I, I was like, I don't remember what the situation was now, but I remember hearing them tell the story, and I was like, dude, I was there when that happened. That is nothing like what you're describing. It was like some minor thing, and it was being blown up into this like my honor was questioned and my life was on the line and I could have been seriously injured. And I was like, whoa. That will actually come up probably in the belonging crisis and weaponized in, in the warfare crisis probably. Yeah, but, but I'm, I'm not... Um, I, I have written already a whole blog post about how much I hate fucking Brett Kavanaugh. So I'm not on his side. I'm just saying how different the things that people are seeing are and right. how it can be like portrayed that way by their media and by their social reality that it's not that we're discussing rape and we're like shocked that they can be so cavalier about someone attempting to rape someone we're literally discussing two very different events right and i guess and when i had said that's fine earlier what i meant was if that's what they're going to say their narrative is that's fine but if you're going to you know i guess what so what i brought to the table was like listening to these guys talk and then i was like you know look we can just however this goes down we can agree that refusing to call witnesses because they will either have to say that, that it's strongly believed that they'll either have to say incriminating things or perjure themselves. So if you're refusing to call witnesses, you're probably on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. And that's true no matter what. Mm -hmm. If you have to lie or hide the truth to, to defend yourself, you're not defending the truth. That's not a political, that's not a political statement. So it's, you know, I don't know. That was, that was just my, my throw into their thing. Um, what's the, what's the third bullet point we hear we have under, uh, the fragmentation and reality crisis. At, oh, 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 right before, quickly before we move on, one of the things in that uh, section was um, talking about how these uh, ideas get spread to, to the groups, to the meta groups. Grassroots and underground media productions keep the tribes up to date on opinions. And I'm like, uh, and they say with wildly different perceptions of the same event, but that kind of struck close to home. Are we a grassroots or underground media production, Stephen? Hmm. Are we keeping our tribe up to date on opinions? No one fact check us. <laughs> <laughs> Please, God, no one fact check us. <laughs> we post all these little links for no reason at all. Yeah. No, by all means do. Um, yes, and we are. I guess. Yeah, I mean. I mean, I just, I like talking with you about community stuff. I don't, I don't, from the inside, it doesn't feel like I am part of a gigantic war that's bringing all of our society down, you know? No, if anything, we're doing the opposite, but that's what everyone thinks. So, right. I don't know. Yeah. I, I did notice, speaking of liking doing this, that this is 
um, this is like my, my social outlet for doing things or my, my, uh, my replacement for social media basically. Mm-hmm. Cause we started doing this in February of what? 2016 sounds right. I think so. And I think I stopped using Facebook in November of that year. Okay. Um, or maybe the, maybe it was the following year, but whenever it was, I, I don't get that much of a compulsion to like, you know, sh- shout my thoughts to the internet. Yeah. And so I'm able to save it for every couple of weeks and get it all out at once. That's and awesome. I, I, I think this is a much better replacement. So. Yeah. I still have to shout on my blog, too. I haven't been caught up in a Facebook fight in years, and it's great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I strongly recommend someone try it. Yeah. I don't know. I deleted Everyone off. should have their own podcast. Yeah, have their own podcast or just get rid of Facebook. Or not, oh, I'm oh, not gonna, get rid of Facebook. I, I do think this is a, a wagon worth jumping on and saying that you know everyone should get off Facebook. But I get about it, sounds, half it sounds cliched to, to get on that wagon. So what I'll say instead is try going without it for a week. You'll probably notice like this weird separation anxiety of like, I'm missing out on stuff. What's, what's happening here? Yeah. But then... You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that especially if you're one who gets heated on Facebook somewhat frequently, as many people do because of all the shit we're talking about here, yeah. um, it, it's refreshing to say, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out. And they sit out enough of them and then no one expects you to get involved in them anymore. Yeah. So it's great. Much of my Facebook use is like more of a bulletin board service. Like half my links that I get are from interesting people sharing them on Facebook. I'm pretty sure I saw this linked on Facebook as well. Uh, which is where I first got it, though I'm not positive about that. Could have been a different source. That's true. So that's something that's something to think about. Is you got to supplement your media income from somewhere else. And luckily, I outsource it to people like you and Zeke and yeah. other people who send me fun things. So, but I yeah, um, I basically don't socialize on Facebook anymore. That's probably a good call. Yeah. I don't know. I it it's one of those things that like this is a new social media is like a new tool, hmm. and it's it will probably be at a really cool place with it in a generation or so. But just imagining what it could be like in 40 years is weird, right? Yeah. Because of how far it's come in the last 10 yeah. or 15, whenever MySpace came out. So, um, I don't know. It's it's a, it's a precarious situation. It's already such a powerful thing. It's uh, It has me wary of it, like an old man. Get off my <laughs> lawn. So. Right. All right. Atomization and the belonging crisis. All right. The belonging crisis took away a genuine feeling of community. The belonging crisis is, ahem, the process by which individuals come to experience themselves primarily as separated individuals who are not part of a greater whole. The freedom that comes with this is accompanied by feelings of isolation, alienation, and depression. Um, which is another another problem with the whole breakdown of, uh, of the meaningness, right? The, the, I mean, the atomization is the same kind of thing because when you're part of a group, even like a large, close-knit, extended family that has some kind of goal, you're still a group and you have meaning in your life through how you contribute to them, right? But the, the more atomized you are, the less meaning there is because we find meaning in other people yeah. for the most part. And then you're, you know, the more atomized you are. And they might talk about this. I did I did skim through because we took the best notes for this section of this part. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they talk about this, but I imagine the more atomized you are, the more susceptible you are to joining some fringe, scary style thing. They right? actually say that just a few lines later. Yeah, oh, perfect. I, I, yeah, I got that right after. Oh, yeah, I'm to done. Mitigate lo- oh, it's all right. To mitigate loneliness, anxiety, and other adverse conditions that lack of belonging brings, people are primed to fly into the arms of others. All they need is an offer of togetherness and a few convincing means. You know what? I'm not dumb. I'm smart. I anticipated what these, what these geniuses were going to say. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I imagine the more shunned and atomized you are, the more likely you are to find an online community, you know, like r slash incels or, you know, some hate group. Uh, in fact, you know, there was that reformed neo-Nazi that was on Sam Harris's podcast last year. Mm-hmm. That's how they get all their members, mm-hmm. right? That was um, a fantastic episode. Yeah. It was, it was, put, it was emotional. It put me in a weird mood, too. It was intense. I remember I was like at the store listening to this, and I'm like, I need to 
go out to my car. Like I, oh, I finished wow. shopping and stuff, but it was just like, holy shit. Um, mm. It was great. So it was one of the Christopher... You know what? If I Google Sam Harris neo-Nazi, I'm not going to get that episode. So, uh, you don't think? I, I bet I'll find something else. Okay. Um, in any case, it's search on there for Christopher something. It's in the last year of his episodes. That's a bad reference. My bad. Okay. I'll link to it if we have to. All right. Fair enough. Cool. So, yeah. These these are the things that help tribal, tribal uh, mimetic tribes exist. And then we go on to globalization and the proximity crisis. You know what? I should have put the summary at the end, but whatever. The proximity crisis removed distance from conflicting views. They say, The internet pornifies our private lives, including our political views, leaving nothing to the imagination. When everything is laid bare, respect vanishes, for our proximity exposes all of our ugliness. This manifests in what psychologists call dissimilarity cascades, meaning, the more we know about someone, the less we like them. And environmental spoiling, meaning, Proximity with those we don't like spoils the environment as a whole. Mutually exclusive memeplexes have no distance from one another thanks to the global village. This is the proximity crisis. Good fences make good neighbors, and the power of media has flattened all social fences. That's an interesting... That's not one I think I could have guessed, you know, thought about from my armchair, and that's a really good one, because mm-hmm. uh, it's staring you in the face once you see it. But yeah, like, na- name any insane fringe fringe group that exists. And there was actually a great XKCD about this just a few days ago, mm-hmm. um, where it was that it was that one, you know, that it was the exact same drawing of that one of the guys pouring over the computer. I, you know, honey, come on. And it's like, no, I got someone's wrong on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I thought of this really annoying thing. I need to see if anyone online actually believes this so I can be mad at them. <laughs> and somebody does. And there's no looking for them because they're one Google search away, right? Yeah. Or they're, they're on your Facebook or they're on Reddit or whatever it is. So... Mm-hmm. There's there's no shortage of people to be mad at mad at even though you would never see them in real life because they're so they're so small and fringe, their fringes don't exist anymore like yeah. that yeah. yeah fringes are no longer fringes exist they're no longer that far away from you right yeah it used to be like I mean my neighbor over there he's pretty cool like he lent me power when the, he had the fire here and I couldn't do anything without any power I ran extension cord to his place he's a pretty chill guy for the most part. Uh, he seems kind of like a dude, bro. I don't think I would like him if we like had to hang out all the time, but I see him every now and then. I'm like, hey, what's up? He's like, hey. Sometimes we chat for like a minute or two about like the dog or whatever. And that's that's cool. That's a good measure of distance. I'm I'm happy to have this relationship with him. But if like he was in my living room on my computer every single fucking day posting about like how he loves the sports ball and the beer and bitches and hoes, I'd be like... the. F- Fuck! I I miss, must start a movement to <laughs> expunge you from the earth. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 summarizes my like my sense of uh, I can't think of the word. That 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 summarizes my my empathy for anyone in the service industry. Because mm. there's no telling them to get the fuck away from you, right? Right. Um, that's why when I was in the service service industry for like four years delivering pizzas, I de- I delivered. I I and you know it was a small enough place you could do whatever you wanted. So. Um, but the best thing about delivering is my interactions were necessarily very short. And I was great for like 90 second intervals. But if I just talk for some customer for, you know, two, three minutes mm. and it goes on and on and every customer is an idiot if you've ever worked customer service, okay. then it's, then I, I, I get annoyed and I can't handle it. So um, that's why I lasted six months at the bank because nobody who knows what they're doing goes to the bank. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows what they're doing goes to the bank four or five times a week. Right. These, there were, there were, a dozen people that came through our small branch that would come through four or five times a week. What were they doing? Fuck if I know. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, I can I can tell you what they did when they were in the branch, but I think they're just there because they're bored or something. Uh. They'd come and like check on their balance, or they'd come and withdraw twenty dollars, mm-hmm. or come and withdraw 
in cash from one account and move it to another account. And like, Weird. I know because they could do this all from their toilet on their phone. Maybe they really were just like lonely and you wanted to see a human. Yeah. Or maybe they feel like a receipt makes it real or something, but like a receipt exists at the branch. Like, you know, if, if the one I get, if the one I give you in the branch is real, so is the one that happens online. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to lie about the one online, I could give you a fake, I can give you a fake receipt in the branch. And people come in and just do the dumbest thing. You know, like some guy come in, toss his card at me and I'm like, and what's your account number? And he's like, I'm not going to say it out loud. Get it off the card. And I'm like, first of all, don't be such a prick. (laughs) And second of all, your account number and routing number, full name and address are on every check you write. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me that this is some secret information? Don't be a, don't be a, you're not even being good at security right now. God. Anyway, so you can see even years, years distant, the horrors of customer service last with me. And that's because they're, 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 the proximity crisis to other people that suck. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Bring, bringing it back. Bringing it back. Yeah. All right. We've got the stimulation and sobriety crisis as the fifth part here. And the sobriety crisis reduced our agency and turned us into addicts. Yeah. And this, I, this talked about what I was getting on Facebook. I think this is where they bring up uh, Tristan, Tristan Harris. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, this is basically where they explain super stimuli, which I think is tying together points four and six. And they had to put this in here to explain that. But uh, I'm assuming most of our listeners are already familiar with the concept of super stimuli. Uh, it's things like um, a Snickers bar, which has an, a combination of fat and sweetness and cocoa that you would never find in nature, but uh, exists nowadays. And so it overwhelms all our natural instincts. To, to seek out that sort of food, which is very bad for us, but it is, you know... It hits all the notes that our ancestors wanted at intense levels. Yes, exactly. And, and there are good versions of that, too. Yeah. Um, like music. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, music, art, even even tasting something that, you know, isn't necessarily bad for you or having it in moderation. Yeah. Is a, that's why it feels good. Yeah. Um, they the, bring up the example of the, uh, the Beatles. I forget which kind of Beatle it is, but uh, they... Yes. <laughs> there's the, a little picture. Yeah, there's, there's beer bottles that look uh, like a super, super attractive female Beatle. Like, so much more attractive. It hits all the things that the male Beatle uh, looks for in a sex partner is attracted to. They will just have sex with these beer bottles until they die of dehydration. Or get eaten by ants, and they'll continue to bang these bottles in the presence of female beetles. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. the female beetle can compare to this bottle. This actually ties in really well to something I just finished doing this afternoon. And I can't remember why this came up. It was relevant to something else we were just watching. Um, so I was showing Rachel the episode of Futurama, which I think is the finale of season three. Um, I forget what it's called. Now that sucks. Um, but it's one where Fry is dating that Lucy Liu bot. Oh, right. And... Uh, don't hey, we're, we're both big fans of Lucy Liu, mm. and she did the voice for this, which is hilarious. And so basically, they it's the future. You can clone whatever robot, uh, whatever personality you want into a robot, and then it'll make out with you and love you. Um, and uh, this is the, the super stimulation of that Beetle reminded me of this because that's not that unimaginable. You know, it'll probably be in some digital form before it's in, you know, robots actually touching us. But um, we're going to, there's, there's going to be a point where uh, fake mates are more appealing than real mates. And... Anyway, that's exactly what there's they in the Futurama episode. There's this uh, propaganda film they show everybody in the year three thousand, but Fry never saw because he's from the year two thousand. Yeah, and it's like you know this guy's sitting in in his room making out with his Marilyn Monroe bot, and he's missing out like a chance to like get a job and you know have a date and procreate and all this stuff. And then you know the next day, it, the, the his planet exploded. What was that planet? Earth. <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah, just like that. Yeah. 
couldn't be more real couldn't be more relevant i challenge you to disagree no i do not disagree <laughs> at all <laughs> excellent <laughs> uh their their actual quote that we pulled is evolutionary trap adaptive instincts turn maladaptive due to exposure to supernormal stimuli magnified and more attractive versions of evolved stimulus humans are just as fallible whether it be junk food, laugh tracks, pornography, or likes on social media, these artificial triggers addict us and hijack our agency. And I think they really brought that up so they could uh, get into weaponization and the warfare crisis. Which I want to get into immediately after this. But the, the social media thing, I want to just hit for one more beat, which was, uh, this is where they brought up Tristan Harris talking about our attention hijacking. And, you know, fuck it, we're doing this. We, we see our download numbers. Mm-hmm. It's nice to watch them go up. Mm-hmm. And it's it's... It hits um, a a vibe that is very primal, because you know, imagine giving I don't know how you know I can I can make up a just so story of how this sort of thing evolved, but you know, it it'd be a lot like giving a speech you know to somebody or giving a talk to ten people and then you know doing another one to a thousand people, yeah, and that feels a hundred times better, right? It just it it really hits you. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, the they they talk about the get off Facebook uh, ideas a little bit in that section too. So which was also very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that does lead us into the weaponization and warfare crisis, and the warfare crisis transformed our minds into weapons for hidden wars in plain sight. And the well, the big quote that I pulled from this is outrage porn is the super source, super normal stimuli of the culture war. Yeah, and that, that's a good summary of it. I like that a lot. And I, I pulled out a bigger quote, which you guys are going to have to uh, suffer through me reading, which is, um, I did like an ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. It was some book that advised, it was written in like the 92, 94, and it was, it advises, and I didn't get the name of it, it's an article, um, advises Russian operatives to introduce, to quote, introduce geopolitical disorder into internal American activity, encouraging all kinds of separatism and ethnic, social, and racial conflicts, actively supporting all dissident movements, extremist, racist, and sectarian groups, thus destabilizing internal political processes in the U.S., unquote. After the Cold War, Russia, no longer competitive with America in in hard power, pivoted to an aggressive soft power to regain their geopolitical influence. And anybody who's followed politics in the last two years has very good reason to believe that they've been very successful at that. And I think it's worth pointing out, I believe we covered this also in our episode on on basically this exact topic, uh, that the 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 analysis have been done on on uh, the sorts of articles that get shared. And the more outrage provoking an article is, the more it gets shared. It is it is a mimetic fitness trait to be as outrage provoking as possible. Because that will get your supporters to share it, and that will get the people who are uh, on the opposite side to share it as well in outrage that they're being portrayed this way. It's, it's like they said, outrage porn is what we have been running on for a while now. And I'm kind of getting tired of it, which is kind of nice, but I'm not sure everyone else is at the same rate as I am. And it's a horrifying ingredient that it's, it's horrifying that this ingredient is so successful. Mm-hmm. Again, the more outraging, the more it's shared by mm-hmm. both sides. And the fact that you're going to start sitting these out. People, somebody, maybe not you, but if you were if you were a a more involved in in some of these outrage fights or something, then you said, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out. They're going to say both sides will say, see, he's complicit, or see, he's with us. Right. And yeah, this is sort of a bleak picture, but we'll get to the to the you know hopeful part later on. So, cool. All right. So then they dive into culture war 2.0, and you actually touched on exactly what they're about to say here. Uh, they first uh, talk about the 
types of polarity that are commonly used uh, to describe historical per periods. Unipolarity being one superpower exists that creates order, like the uh, Pax Britannica. Bipolarity, two superpowers keep each other in check, like the Cold War. Or multipolarity, where multiple nations have comp competing influence. And this is the really unstable one, which is what resulted in World Wars 1 and 2. And the contention of this article is that Culture War 1.0, uh, for those of us who are around for it, I don't remember, do you remember Culture War 1.0 at all? They talked about the Bush era. Yeah. And that, that I mean, I think 1.0 went on for longer. We're in the first few years of 2.0. Okay. So I think we all remember 1.0. This was... Okay. I wasn't sure if you, yeah... I mean, I'm young, but not that young. Okay, cool. Um, you, you also look kind of young for your age. So, yeah, I, get I keep that. getting fooled. Uh, but, yeah, no, uh, Culture War 1.0, which was a lot of fun to be in, partially because we won it, uh, was between uh, the coalitions and secular liberals over what they called the soul of America. Yeah, I mean... It I'll was like, our, our, is it okay to be gay, basically, would be the big one, right? Yeah, yeah. and, and we, I, I only gave a, a kind of a gesture at we won it because, like, we won, but then we got Donald Trump. So, like... Right. It, well, then it evolved into 2.0. Right. But, but the initial but, but, culture but it's war, not, like... like it, you, if you win World War One, but then cause a worse World War, it's like, right. did, who, who really won here, right? Yeah. So, but um, yeah, the, I mean, in, it, the first one, like, they could no longer force kids to say the prayer in school. Like, they could no longer uh, push push religion in school basically those are so much easier really fights one. i know right well they weren't at the time like it was a fight to like not have creationism taught in schools i remember being incensed about that back in the day man yeah uh it, it was I, a fight to be like i i once heard from someone that was close to me say uh and this this is not a thing that he actually believed in retrospect but he was just saying it like because we were in culture war and he was fighting me it's like yeah the one good thing hitler did do was the concentration camps for the gays <laughs> right yeah no right that's that's yeah my face made a gesture and i'm not a very emotive facially expressive person yeah that was, that was intense yeah it was um and now like no one gives two fucks like even hardcore no one, gives, no one gives two fucks about people being gay about people being not, gay, yeah. not about the concentration camps no 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 no, no no god no but no like even people like on the far right, for the most part, are now like, yeah, being gay is totes cool. I mean, they're still there. Th there are still some there. You but know, like, our vice president, for example, but like, and probably our current president, if he has, no, if he can be said, if he can be said to have any beliefs. Right, okay, right, um, yes. Yeah, so he'll he'll say whatever, he, whatever will get him votes or he'll do him absolutely likes on, on Twitter, but yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, like even the Pope, you know? I, I, that's true, yeah. New Pope's pretty dope. Yeah, right? Yeah. All right, so the only people who aren't cool with it are like really the orthodox hardcore now. Like, you know, I mean, almost all Mormons are totally on board with people being gay. They're just like, oh, our fucking leadership is anti-gay. So, all right, I guess we're towing that line. Yeah, the Mormons have a weird history with being on the right side of the fence, though. What, what they had a new revelation in like 1970s that black people were humans, too. And, <laughs> um, right. So, you know, they, they can they can catch on, but... Uh, at the very least, they're not causing a lot of damage. That I, I guess maybe their numbers are too small. But I'm just saying, every single Mormon I know in person is totally liberal and on board with, uh, with gay rights. Same. They yeah. Yeah. Although I do want to go back and say that you, you said that the problems. I said that the problems back then were like nice and easy. Mm. And I was listening to um, Elon Musk's episode on the Joe Rogan Experience, which is a lot of fun. Everyone should listen to it. And then I was looking to see what other new ones were out. And Neil deGrasse Tyson was back on recently. Mm. And he, he was just talking. You're making some of the same talking points I heard like 15 years ago. 
and um, not much because they don't need to be said that much anymore because those those fights are over. Mm-hmm. But I maintain those fights were easier. I you weren't alienating your friends. Yeah, no, by exactly. saying that you know. I think that uh, we should teach science in science class. That yeah. you know, you got you could get in fights on the internet, but you weren't like like there was there was never a, a sense of of alienation that came about saying these well, things. And more to the point, like you knew where your friends and your peers stood. I mean, like yeah, as, as they say in the article, it was a bipolar affair. There was the right wing Christians, there was the secular liberals. That was it. It was like the U.S. and Russia. You knew uh, who was on your side and who you could count on. And they say nowadays we have multipolar distributions of power which do not obey the logic of bipolarity. Agents do not see allies behind the line and enemies in front of it. Instead, the lines surround them and are constantly shifting. Attacks can come from right or left, from state power or mob rule, from Twitter pylons or swatting. And this is, this is uh, for everyone else who's reading the Terra Ignata series right now by Ada Palmer, it's the same thing that you get there. It's the same thing you get in most civil wars nowadays, like in Iraq. One of the major problems was, like, you're living in the city, your next-door neighbor's a Sunni, you're a Shiite, you've been great all along, but now all of a sudden there's, like, huge issues. Like, everyone is on some other line, you don't know who to trust, it's it's paranoia-inducing, and I think that is the big problem. Yeah. and, uh, and Well, one of the big problems. And I think the paranoia-inducing, and they talked about, you know, enemies are no longer in front of you, they're everywhere comes from like like and they, they talk about this they're they're more eloquent about this than i am but the multipolarity of the the current war landscape mm. you know like a, a, a fun annoying concession i used to make to people that was fair for me because i this is something i could probably have this is something i probably believed and probably still believe but it was nice to get like a quick rise out of people but it was still an easy issue and the, the example was like yeah totally um we can teach uh intelligent design in school just not in science class right, <laughs> right. um so like uh it was it was the response to some prompt that you know our philosophy professor you know had us like say all right raise your hand if you think you should teach evolution or teach intelligent design in school hands went up raise hands if you say that you shouldn't my hand went up along with most you know other people all right now everyone switch sides and argue for that side and you've got like 10 minutes and my team settled on like hey sure teach it in school teach it in social science um not not in not in biology and that was kind of like a you know sideways dig um but that was the that was the kind of sideways middle of the road answer that you could give and not lose friends or gain enemies. Right. You, you would, you would irk people cause you weren't really making, you weren't really making a fight, but it was, you know, a sideways shot didn't hit anybody back then. Right. Yeah. And now it does. Yeah. And now, you know, if you were to make some middle of the road comment, I can't think of one right off. I should have thought of one, but you know, something that I probably believe that's not, or yeah, private gun ownership is okay. You know, it, it is okay. Yeah. Um, that's going to piss off some people. Yeah. And that's something I probably believe that, you know, it, it is, right? If, you, if you're a responsible adult, you should be allowed to have a gun. Um, I'll also say that you should be forced to register it. Yeah. And uh, that it should take uh, licensing to acquire one. Um, so there, I pissed off both sides. And, <laughs> well, you uh, piss off me. I also think every gun should be registered. Yeah. Well, we're, unfortunately, we're both too sensible. We, Damn. Yeah. Damn but, us but, and but, our but sensibilities. If we're sh- but if we're shooting to the sides, now we're hitting people. Yeah. And the, the, even that, I think, to me, sounds like a very equitable uh compromise that's going to piss off both people or that's going to piss off people on both sides rather and i think that's like the problem because the feeling of betrayal by your own side really sucks i mean i yeah totally i think everyone i know has lost like close friends over this culture war stuff or people that they thought they could trust uh have you i'm trying to think of any examples on the plus side it's easy to not lose friends when you don't have that large of a pool to start <laughs> with i'm kidding like i know zika ron like lost almost his entire a large chunk of his support network yeah. over something. Honestly, I probably would if I was still if I was still on Facebook. Yeah. Um. You know, like I said, I got off before. Must have been in 2016 then. 
because yeah, it was before things totally went to shit. So, um, if I was still on Facebook, I probably would have lost all the friends that I know or all the friends that I don't know rather who voted for Donald Trump or something. Yeah. And you know, again, I've got friends who voted for Trump, but, uh, we won't make it all about him, but he's a big part. He's one of the big five factors that happens to make all this shit happen. So, yeah. well, for um, me, I, I remember the first time this happened, uh, I like always considered myself a feminist, like a hardcore feminist at that matter. I totally defended it. I still like all their ideals. Right. Uh, but, uh, I was just like chatting on Facebook with some friends and someone was like, Oh my God, these people I know got someone to do their feng shui and this guy is totally not an Asian dude. They got some white person to do feng shui. And I was like, yeah, because it's so much more real when an authentic Asian person is doing his racial magic, right? And there was like a massive blow up about how like having a white person do feng shui was cultural appropriation. And I was like, it's all bullshit anyway. What the fuck are you talking about? Who gives a fuck? And seriously, are you telling me there's racial magic that exists? And if you are, that's super racist. Th- that, yeah, right? Because <laughs> it's like... Unless unless there actually is racial magic, then it's just a fact of the world, right? In which case, different we should all know about have it. different magics. And we should have people of certain races are rearranging our furniture right right Right? when i was and we should be careful not to mix the bloodlines because then their magic gets diluted yeah so be careful what you're arguing for here (laughs) those are all that's a very uh sensible implication of that argument but it was like it was i mean looking back on it now i'm like man i can't believe how you were naive enough to make that joke well no no no. i can't (laughs) believe how much importance i associated to the event because it was socially traumatizing like this was a person that was respected uh, and more to the point, like this was someone I trusted as like an ally in the fight against right wing assholes, and and all of a sudden they were like, "Fuck you, fuck everything about you, I hate you, and everyone who is my friend should hate you as well." And it was when did this happen? Uh, three or four years ago. Well, that was, sucks. Yeah, it really sucked, and I mean, I got over it, but. It took a while. Like, it seriously ruined my week and fucked up my month. Well, and you can't even agree on the rules for discourse that would have resolved that argument, right? Because, right. and, I, and I bring that up somewhat tongue-in-cheek to bring it back to the article, but also, mm-hmm. like, that maybe it's because your position seems so sensible to me. Right. But even putting it from where they are, I guess, you know, it's inappropriate to make that joke or something or, you know, whatever. But well, like, to them, it wasn't even a joke. It was just cultural appropriation to have someone who's not white do your fun- – or someone who's not Asian do your feng shui. And therefore, I was being a colonial oppressor. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll i leave that one there and we'll move on because okay. we, won't, we won't finish if we dive too much into that. So. That's true. Yeah, we've been going for a while anyway. Okay. They say there's four major events that ushered in Culture War 2.0 and they're laying down the history because they've, they've told us what – medic uh tribes are what um the characteristics and um oh wait yeah we actually left out the last sentence of the uh the, the previous section which was oh, thus the conditions of 2018 strange allegiance strange alliances rear guard action unstable positions and everywhere flux and insecurity yeah that's that's great for a, a nightmare of interacting with people yes but yeah they, then they go on to talk about the four major events that have led up to us being in our current culture war 2.0 yeah uh, the first one they say is the end of Occupy, which was my personal favorite one. Because Occupy kind of fizzled out without getting anything done, really. And uh, they say, disheartened by capitalism's invincibility, people gravitated to identity politics and away from class politics. 
We cannot ignore the explosion of social justice act activism post-Occupy and the relative lack of anti-capitalist activism until 2015. And they say this is because corporations can be woke, but they can't be anti-capitalist. This corporate embrace of the culture wars, because they can be woke, they, they, can, they, they can't be anti-capitalist, though. They can, certainly, they can also definitely be pretend woke in order to get people more people to buy your... Uh, your non-racist coffee as opposed to your racist coffee or right. something. Right, or to yeah. go to your non-racist um, your non-racist burger chain, chicken burger chain, as opposed to your racist Oh, one. yeah. Or, or you're, homophobic. You're, that's right, yeah. yeah. That said, I, I think I mentioned this. I've eaten at Chick-fil-A since they lost the war. So, okay. Yeah. And yeah, the, the, this corporate embrace helped accelerate the spread of identity politics throughout society. So I, I personally hate corporations, so I love that particular aspect of this. It also served to neuter the anti-capitalist left by embedding issues of social justice into corporate policy through HR and PR departments. If corporations can be allies of social justice, then the radical leftist assertion that all oppression is intersecting has the ground torn out from under it. This helped fracture the left on questions of its goals, its methods, and its true enemies. So the fact that the, the corporations who are, you know, oppressors in a way, they have a lot of money, they uh, employ people, they exploit people according to some others they but not can the Bayesian ruin conspiracy the LLC. not the no not the basic conspiracy llc but corporations in general are uh, oppressors and yet they can also be on the side of the oppressed through these hr and pr gambits really fractured the left in the post-occupy thing and created instead of having one homogenized left all these little splinter groups that had their own things that they ran after yeah and i i'm gonna pronou- i'm gonna mispronounce this name probably um the second one was uh Obergefell? Mm-hmm. That's a hard name to say. Sorry. I think that's what it is. I don't know either. Obergefell v. Hodges. That was the legalization of gay marriage. Yep. The official um, end in of the culture war 1.0. And uh, what to say there, except that this was a blow to, you know, it. I don't imagine it's a large portion of our listener base, but there are people out there who aren't total monsters that believe that gay marriage is is a bad idea, that, you know, gayness is a bad idea, um, that it's getting more and more fringe as we go along. Um I can't believe that was just 2013. 20 was that 2015? 2015 when we legalized gay marriage, wasn't it? Man, they're way behind. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing. Um, but to them, this was like an important point, right? Uh, this was probably, I it's it's what would be an equivalent for us if something like this happened. This might be a, a, a useful thought exercise. This might be like reintroducing prayer, criminalization, like, abor- criminalizing abortion. That's a good one. Or like you know, compulsory prayer in school or something, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, yeah, this this is. Well, I, I think the abortion thing is, I, obviously, I'm going to say it's not like that because it's worse, but it's <laughs> not like that because it's worse. You're causing harm that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas nobody's hurt if gay people can get married other than your your spiritual pureness, right? right. If that's your something you're concerned about um, and you think that that would harm it. So uh, I guess I wanted I Well, it, or all of society if you think gay marriage degrades all of social fabric right so and i I only belabor it because we only put uh, you know just the definition what it was the legalization of gay marriage but the i i wanted to belabor it because it is a big thing if you're on the losing side of that to us it's just like about fucking time Mm -hmm. can't believe it took us this long that's super embarrassing but to people who lost they're like i can't believe this is it we've we've been pushed back you know this this Again, I'm not sympathizing well i'm sympathizing because they're humans but i'm not i'm not uh, supporting where they're coming from if you can't see a difference fuck off yeah um so number number three was caitlin jenner yeah i was existing. surprised by that one existing was 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 what she did um <laughs> right. yeah so what 
Oh wait, there. Oh, there were only four. I thought there were five major events. Yeah. Do we want to dive into what the, the 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 split factor was there, other than like the fact that I guess I can give a rough definition and you can tell me it's wrong and correct it, right. or say good job, Stephen. I guess the the positive acceptance of trans people. She was on the cover of Vanity Fair, and this 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 fractured the left. Who you know we, we were all felt we were all just coming down from the high of of gay gay marriage being legalized literally like a week earlier, um, maybe two weeks. Really? Uh, it was. June that we realized gay marriage and early, I think July 1 or July 3 that Vanity Fair came out. That was in the article, but the dates aren't on our notes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, oh yeah, we did it. We're all so woke. We're great. Oh, wait, you know, Bruce Jenner's a girl now. And uh, that that's weird. Bruce Jenner's, Bruce is a guy. Caitlin, Caitlin's really a guy under there. And I so don't know you, if that's, you got, you I got, don't know if that split the left though. I think maybe there was more splintering in like the more the center areas of the country. Like. Were there really left people? I guess it did split like the turfs uh, off well, from the rest of feminism. It split off turfs, but I think it, in turfs I guess, being trans exclusionary radical radical feminists for those unfamiliar. Right, and I had to learn that term just a few 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 episodes ago or a few months ago. I don't know. I I think when I said split the left, I meant that these are people who were who were pro gay marriage, mm-hmm. and then they they were confused by this. Oh, wow. um, so I guess okay, I see. Yeah, I see on the left saying. of the middle, but you know, yeah, yeah. there's a center ground there. They didn't. Nobody on the far left is probably bummed about this. I guess, I don't know, do we want to dig into that much as much as we did the last one? There's not a whole lot to say there other than this upset some people and has widely been regarded as a confusing move. I'm kidding. I'm quoting that Douglas Adams thing. (laughs) I'll cut that out. Cool. No, that's fine. And number four is my uh, favorite was the chaos president. Yeah. Um, And it opens with a a quote from Donald Trump. He says, uh, I love chaos. It's really great. Yeah, which is his fourth level speaking or his fourth grade speaking level. Right. I'm not gonna hide my digs. But he makes a great today. chaos general. No, he doesn't. So is a lot of chaos. That's, the he chaos general. Have the genius behind it. The chaos general isn't just about sowing chaos. Right. It's right. about winning. Yeah. And so behind all that chaos is a masterful plan that will more or less guarantee victory. Whereas I'm not sure there was that often a master plan. Like sometimes there was, but for the most part, I think Harry was just like. I can deal with chaos better than my opponents, so more chaos is better for me. Yeah, but since he tended to win... Yeah, I guess since he was smart, he could deal with chaos better than his opponents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, Trump sent the establishment right and left spinning, self-questioning, and delegitimized. And so now, yeah, now there's really not just two sides. They're just all everywhere. Yeah, and to the extent that, I mean, this is one of those things. You know, everyone on the left never took Donald Trump seriously, or we never took him... uh, Seriously, but we took him literally because he would say things. And it's like, oh, people say what they believe. Mm-hmm. Except when cases where people are mind-reading were whatever. Um, I'll leave that out. I'll, I won't dive into that. And then people on the right, you had lots of never-Trumpers because, like, we're not going to have this, you know, cartoon maniac be a, you know, whose only credential of being, you know, leading people is running reality TV shows yeah. and bursting into locker rooms of beauty pageants and doing all kinds of weird shit. Yeah. No, fuck that. We're going to be never Trumpers. And then some of them stuck to it and almost, not, you know, many of the famous ones didn't. Yeah. You know, Mitt Romney came out and spoke out against him and then was down licking boots. You know, uh, Paul Ryan, he said his dad was part of the JFK assassination called his wife ugly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there he is, you know, licking his boots all the time. I don't know. It's it's a weird thing. And this, I'm not, I'm, I'm being politically inflammatory, but, you I know, think a lot this, of this is a point where, like, I... I think, it's I think these, these, these are these are questions of fact. Like this isn't my partisan opinion that the right is worse than the left. Yeah. This is my this is my I'm going to argue uh, like nonpartisan opinion that Donald Trump sucks as a person and as a president. I think um, what it really did to the right is it split off the populist right, the majority, um, from the intellectual right. The intellectuals on the right are the only ones that I 
personally had an easier time identifying with, and they're almost all against Trump, but the ones that are in politics and need votes are basically unwilling to not toe the party line because he has the votes. The intellectuals are a small minority, and everyone else is voting. Yeah, and then it's hard to look at polls in today's climate because things are weird. Mm-hmm. But when you see that he has like a 32% approval rating and only 40, low 40% of the country is registered Republican, mm-hmm. that tells you that like one in four Republicans were, were scared off by Donald Trump, right? So it's not like, not just one's political power, it's the muggles on the street too. So um, uh, it's it's a thing. I guess to be, I'm making an effort to being charitable at all of these. I, I would suspect that many people who are in favor of Donald Trump think that he is succeeding at what they wanted him to do, which was kicking up the system. And if that was your goal and that's what you think he's doing, then you win. Um, well, that means the rest of us and for the country is a different thing. But, yeah. but I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be an asshole. I, I, I went ahead and slipped and dazzled him towards the end. Yeah, so that's what I got there. Okay. We, can, we can move on. Uh, they give us a quick anatomy of a mimetic tribe, which I thought was really interesting because... This is the part where you like get the cool horoscope or um or uh, Mix Briar personality test where you can like look up yourself and see like oh hey that was neat. Meyer Meyer Myers Briggs. Oh, did I say I said it backwards? It doesn't I? matter. Okay, uh, there, but it's s- like a horoscope, so you might as well just call it horoscope. Yeah, they say anatomy of a medic tribe. Each tribe uh, they're they're saying what consists a medic tribe consists of. They say each tribe has a telos, an objective to obtain or a state to attain. You said an, oh, an objective to obtain or a state to attain. Yes. Those words sound similar. They and do. then I put in quotes, do they though? I think they do. Does every mimetic tribe have a telos? Like, for I example, in the, the Occupy one didn't really have a, a, a... Well, it had a state to attain. It's not an objective, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They gave a really cool breakdown that I couldn't pull up my phone because it did not. It was a Google Doc mm. of how many were there? Like 35 or something that it covered different... I don't think there were that many... It covered at least like a couple two dozen, I a think. couple dozen groups, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's linked to in the article too. Of uh, well, here let me go through them. Oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Okay, each tribe has a telos, an objective. They have sacred values, which are non-negotiable and inviolable. They're yeah. non-negotiable within the mimetic framework. <laughs> there you go. They can't be violated within it either. Uh, if these values are transgressed, it will trigger the tribal member. They will also influence the prime of virtues that the tribal member will signal. They have master statuses being the dominant identifying characteristic of the tribe. Each is persecuted or haunted by an existential threat, which necessitates tribal affiliation for survival. They have campfires, like greeting, meeting areas, places where the ideas are exchanged, uh, online or in meet space, where they communicate and cooperate. Each tribe has chieftains, who either direct the tribe or provide the theoretical foundations for the tribe, or are apologists for the tribe. They each have mental models by which they conceptualize and navigate reality. And each tribe has forebearers, whether they be progenitors of the tribe or personal inspirations of the chieftains. And uh, the rationalist diaspora is on his list, which uh, I thought was really cool. And so I'm going to use their entry for the rationalist diaspora they did, as they an didn't, example. They didn't cover, though, why they call it the rationalist diaspora rather than just the rationalist movement. Uh, because that's kind of what the rationalist movement had been calling itself uh, after the original Less Wrong broke apart. I thought that's what happened to it, not what it, like it is. I mean, you can use it as a noun, too. I'd seen it used as a noun a lot because right. there used to be just Less Wrong where everyone was. And then... That stopped and everyone fragmented and, you know, had a diaspora throughout the web. Maybe I only know the dictionary definition of diaspora and it's not sufficient, but that sounds like a negative thing. Like yeah, we're, like we're, mean, we're wandering now. We, we're yeah, lost. Yeah. I see that's what, not really the case. I mean, it, it's 
well, we have been much more united since uh, Scott Alexander kind of took over the reins and then Less Wrong came back again. We we are more centralized again now than we used to be. But for a number of years there, there was just like a bunch of individual blogs and tumblers and things, and it wasn't. But they were united about the same thing. They weren't. They weren't like going off. Well, I guess some of them go off in different directions. And yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, right. we got uh, what was it? We got a lot of splinter offshoots. That uh, more right. Yeah. Yeah, more right. Exactly. That went their own way, and not like entirely went their own way, but. Somewhat. It, it was definitely a bit of a diaspora, I would say. Yeah, all right. That's fair. Okay. Anyways, they say, Rationalist Diaspora, as the example that we are going to give in this podcast, uh, the goal of the tribe is overcoming biases. Their sacred value is rationality. Their threat is unfriendly AI. Their campfires are less wrong, Slate Star Codex, and meetups. Their chieftains are Elias Ryadkowski, Scott Alexander, and Robin Hansen. Steven Zuber and Inyash Brodsky. <laughs> wow, we made the list. Dude, that's awesome. <laughs> Their mental models are Bayes' theorem, effective altruism, and <laughs> cognitive biases. And their forebearers are Thomas Bayes and I.J. Good. Are our forebearers Thomas Bayes and I.J. Good? I, I hadn't heard of I.J. Good. I had to he's, look him he's up. The guy, he's the guy who, who defined the term singularity or intelligence explosion. Okay, okay. No, wait, that was Werner Vinge. Um, Werner Vinge is the one that you, uh, used the ter- uh, created the term uh, singularity for. Okay, I.J. Good might have been intelligence explosion then. Okay. In any case, I would... I if I, I mean I, I definitely put Bayes on there. That's what we named our conspiracy after. Well, that's that's what Harry named his conspiracy after. We ripped <laughs> off his. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, I I I'm 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 nitpicking. Maybe I guess I don't, I don't know what forebears means. Does that necessarily does does that necessitate an you know an, an a dead person that's no longer involved or like I don't think so because I I would say our forebears would have been more like Elias Yudkowsky and Robin Hansen. Eh, uh, I think and they're they're also our chieftains, but yeah, they because yeah. our the, the movement didn't start with Bayes or I J Good. I don't know if you think about Christians, like I think the forebearer would be Jesus, because like he didn't. Well, you know, assuming briefly that there's a, a personal Jesus as opposed to the myth, but like the Jesus myth is the forebearer because if there was a Jesus person, he didn't know shit about Christianity or about organizing a church or anything. And then the actual chieftain would have been uh, like um, John Paul or was it John Paul? He, he was, he was the, no, just Paul, not John Paul. Uh, Paul. Yeah. You're the Bible expert. Oh, it's sorry. getting late though. Paul, Paul was the guy who founded the first church and really started spreading Christianity right. in the Mediterranean. And he was a guy that actually existed. So he had that going for him. <laughs> yeah. But whereas like Jesus was just like a, guy with some cool ideas that got his ass killed i was uh looking at the the list of memetic tribes here that they have in that google doc um and there are 34 that they put down here and uh street epistemologist is one of them which is fun 34. and their and their forebears are richard dawkins and sam harris which is interesting that is interesting um but like when we'd had uh steven on you know peter bogessian and anthony magno bosco i can't say his name mm-hmm. are the uh chieftains so okay, that's fair. They don't have to be dead and long gone. But I guess maybe Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins popularized. Uh, maybe maybe street epistemology evolved out of uh, talking across religious aisles or from the non-religious to religious, and they did that in a way. Some sometimes nice, sometimes not so nice. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I like it. Um. Yeah, I like. Uh, I'm gonna read one more too from the from the post, but before that, I want to read what they put before they start listing out a few of them, which was uh, quote. Um, in the spirit of charity, we've attempted to describe these tribes using terms that they would use to describe themselves. For example, the term social justice, well, doesn't matter. I just like how they, they say that forthcoming. And so, you know, they're, they're saying, I can't find the quote. They had, they had a thing about like listing these 
doesn't mean that we think that, uh, I want to just find it, sorry. While presenting the following, uh, we're adopting a view-from-nowhere position in order to demonstrate similar mimetic anatomy. However, we do not believe that there is an equivalence between these tribal claims to truth, morality, practicality, or even interestingness. That is for you, reader, to evaluate. But I did love the, the, the attempt at view-from-nowhere and charity to say, look, here's how we think they describe themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's grab... Uh, one that we all hate. Let's do... Neo-Nazis. Yeah, that one seemed almost too easy. I'm scrolling down a little bit more. Post-rationalist sounds like annoying to get into. Oh, of course. Sorters in the intellectual dark web. Ah. Jordan Peterson is the comment... And this isn't someone we all hate, but I just wanted to bring this up because intellectual dark web was something we were discussing earlier. So mm-hmm. this is another one of the mimetic tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jordan Peterson is the common denominator with these two tribes, the Sorters and the Intellectual Dark Web, which he sorts, in, which the article sorts into one. One of the most important figures in the Culture War 2.0, his central message in the war is an emphasis of free speech and the importance of self-truthing. His followers, which we dub the Sorters, mostly comprised of young men, are attracted to Peterson's style and his message of personal responsibility. The Intellectual Dark Web, coined by Eric Weinstein, consists of a group of thinkers who have experienced what they view who have experienced what they view as thought policing by political correct elements of the left. With the ever-increasing popularity of Peterson's brand and platforms such as Quillet and the Rubin Report and the Joe Rogan Experience, watch for both of these tribes to gain further members and make strong push for return to a classically liberal center in the culture. I would not have thought that Rogan was part of the dark intellectual dark web. I would, I would definitely put him at least adjacent to it. I don't know if he had to consent to putting on an inte- any intellectual web. Well, but that's, that's I guess not really his choice that's now, right. is it? <laughs> well, he does have to pose for one of the dark pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right, right. If you don't have the dark picture, you're not in the dark web yet. Yeah. Okay. It's on. It's on your your badge. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm referencing I'm referencing these pictures from an article that I'll dig up and put on the episode notes. But uh, it's it's funny and it gives an overview of the history of the intellectual dark web. But it has pictures of like the top six people and they're all just like standing next to trees or like under street lights and you know crossing their arms and looking gruff and it's like dark out and it's yeah. like get a less <laughs> that to me is what made me think this whole thing was a joke I, like that couldn't be more like on the nose but it they're leaning into the joke yeah and i just i love that visual aesthetic too so i was like this is pretty i i like it too i don't, don't get me wrong i love it but it in the sense of like if they were trying to be serious it's like you guys are being the opposite of serious right now but they're not so it's funny and it's it's art- it looks good too. Whatever. Anyway, so yeah, uh, back to your notes. When I interrupted about Thomas Bayes and I.J. Good. Okay, yeah, sorry. So rationalist di- diaspora. Oh, and yeah. Then afterwards, they have like a little paragraph on each of the thing on each of the mimetic tribes and where they see them going as well. Which I don't know. Did you want to bother with that? Mm, yeah, I'm gonna read the one on rationality because if we give the uh, intellectual dark web one, I'll give us ours. Okay. Incubated on overcoming bias and less wrong. This is an observer tribe in the culture war. Though similar to the new atheists in that they prize rationality, they do not define themselves in opposition to, in opposition to religion. Thanks to the strength of Eli Zudkowski and Scott Alexander's writings and Stephen Inyash's podcast, <laughs> the beliefs and epistemic virtues of the diaspora, they command an increasing respect in the culture war. Watch for, popula- watch for a popularity boost to effective altruism, a struggle with the downsides of, in- downsides of increased attention, and possible pressures by the SJAs, which they call social justice activists. I didn't know they'd changed the name. Um, until I read this, for the rationalists to commit progressive value. To, excuse me, pressure from the SJAs for the rationalists to commit to progressive values. Because right now we're kind of watching, like I did at lunch the other day. I'll watch and point out the occasional stupid thing, but not really take a side because I don't feel like it. Yeah. So it, it's true that, like I like I pointed out, when you're sit, when you if you set up fights on Facebook, someone's going to call you out and say that you're you know hey, 
you're either with us or you're against us. Right. Um, and they, they, the authors anticipate that that might happen to observer groups like the rationalists. So, yeah. I've seen it happen. Oh, you put the quote in here. Oh, no, I put the quote in here. Good job, me. Yeah. Um, so I put that quote that I couldn't find in here er- earlier, and then in parentheses, I fucking love their writing style. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last this end on the bleakest note of this is how the world ends with world culture war 2.0 there are proposed steps forward this Step isn't a, a solution to save the world but it is little things that we can try to do to play to, to fight in the war i guess yeah they had one two three four they have five they had seven altogether but i only really liked four of them so i put those at the top but we'll we'll mention all seven I am an arbiter of what is the best solutions of theirs. I mean, they kept name-dropping us in the article. It's only fair. Right, yeah. yeah. We've got to return the favor. Uh, so the first proposed step forward is uh, Hippocratic Oath of the Culture War. A, at bare minimum, a commitment to good faith dialogue, the principle of charity, and intellectual humility. Acknowledging I could be wrong. And I think that would be really neat. Um, That's a lot easier said than done, though, because we're, we're raised... Well, we're raised. We're, we've ingrained those into our brain that, that that lesson to our brain by now yeah and it's okay for me to say to you i think i could be wrong but if i'm going to go talk to somebody about something really important like um you know uh being inclusive and not a dick to caitlin jenner mm-hmm. uh, if i was to go talk to one of my sja friends and do, do we have to call them that i find that a lot less annoying or excuse me a lot more i hate name changing <laughs> I, I when, you, when you change names, you make me confused. Right. It seems like a deliberate attempt to be confusing. Uh-huh. Anyway, if I talk to one of my social justice activist G warrior friends and say, I could be wrong about this. They'll say, fuck you. This is important. We already, they already talked about earlier in the article. These, these are, these, these values are inviolable yeah. and they're non-negotiable. Yeah. So to say, I might be mistaken about this is t- tantamount to shooting your troops in the back. I've, I've experienced the same thing where, yeah, it's, it's really hard to, it, it looks good to us. But only to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, because we're the only reasonable ones, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that said, if you can, if you can put out some epistemic and intellectual humility. Um, the thing is, if you, if you do like try to do this commitment to good faith dialogue and principles of charity and intellectual humility, you get called out for having privilege. Like only someone who is white and rich and male has the ability to be like, oh, so, you know calm about it when black people are dying and then yeah just it's it's really frustrating that you're you're supposed to be really upset about these things and not take any prisoners and if you show any sort of any sort of willingness to listen to the other side it means that you've abandoned the people you know i don't know how you return the charge of privilege and say therefore shut the fuck up or therefore we don't have to listen to you Mm -hmm. like because you're right that's going to happen i i I guess this is a, I'm going to toss this out to the listeners. I have no idea what to do about that. Like you can't just write those people off because those people might be eminently other, other, eminently sensible on most other things. And we don't exactly have the numbers to be throwing away potential allies. So if we agree on enough, that's the thing, man, we can't agree on 90% and then say, fuck you. Cause we don't agree on a hundred. Mm-hmm. Right. We need to say, we'll work on the rest. You know, um, it's just really but if they're not willing to play you... by that rule too. Yeah. Then how do you, how do you do it? I know? mean, I am a big fan of Lacey green. And I have gotten a lot of shit from people who are like, how could you possibly like that horrible, transphobic, misogynistic person? I'm like... I don't know who you're talking about. Oh, my God. She was one of the uh, earliest YouTubers, uh, sex-positive feminist YouTubers out there that was became really big and popular for 
for being a sex-positive feminist, just helping teach people about feminism and sexuality. Lacey Green? Yeah. Okay, the name rings a bell. Yeah, yeah. She was awesome. And uh, then it it somehow actually got to the point, there's actually a great This American Life episode about it, but to not, you know, belabor the point for 30 minutes explaining how it all happened, basically nowadays this sweet uh, feminist, sex-positive person is the horrible nazi-loving alt-right you know what's the opposite of feminist anti-feminist sure (laughs) big fan of it just Just throwing anti in front of anything yeah yeah, just all the bad things that that uh that those people like they're on the same side basically and i i got a lot of crap from a couple of people in particular for saying that no lacey green's actually pretty cool stop trying to be you know shitty to her because she's done a lot for the movement and She's still a good person. Can you find the... Oh, wait, that's the... Oh, that's weird. This American Life only has four episodes on iTunes. They only ever, yeah, have the four latest episodes. Well, it shows 49, 657, 66, and 402. Um, the, the last four episodes that they aired on air, when they often air repeats. Oh, I see. Yeah. So where do you find this? <laughs> Their website or something? No, it wouldn't be on the website because, like I said, they only have the last four episodes. Um, what, do you buy them? That sucks. I want to listen to this. Yeah. I mean, I still have a copy, I believe. I can send it to you. I'd be, I'd be interested in doing that. Yeah. But, I mean, I can't put it out there in public because yeah. they'd, they'd be upset about that. Yeah. Well. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find it anywhere. If I guess. Yeah. But I also don't want to have to, like, have my laptop open to listen to this. I'd like to listen oh. to it in the cars. I mean, I'll, yeah. I will if I have to. But. Yeah. If, yeah. Anyway, that's that's super annoying. It is. So if I subscribe to this American life, I'll get an episode per week. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well then that doesn't sound like too bad to subscribe to. It's about time. Everyone talks about this show. Um, I only listen to about it like once out of every six or seven episodes, to be well, honest. I'll listen. I'll read the descriptions. All right. Just every now and then I get yeah. lucky. Well, I, what I was mainly worried about is I knew that this has been going on forever and I want to go through 500 hours of backlog. Right. Right. But if I know that at max I have four, then that sounds a lot less scary. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe they just remove content from the world. Like mm-hmm. nobody does that. That's the whole point is data or like data storage is ridiculously cheap. I, I believe it's part of their pay us initiative. Okay. So they are available if I give them a couple bucks. Pretty sure. Okay. That's fair. Okay. Sorry. We got distra- I got distracted. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm just saying I like the Hippocratic Oath idea. I do too. And we've recently had uh, something like that come up in the subreddit. If you guys want to go to the subreddit, you can see some talk about that on the Matt Freeman episode. Uh, we're not going to cover that here, but maybe someday in the future we will discuss that more with someone who's trying to launch something like that. Oh, it was it was the second. It was Don't Give Up Freeman. The our, uh, yeah, our follow up to up our, our follow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Our follow up to Matt Freeman episode. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Give it a shot. All right. Second one. Clean bias. That's right. Which is being honest about our biases and tribal affiliations. We could abandon the pretense to neutrality and more honestly engage with each other, knowing where we stand. Which I also really like because everyone has biases they come to and i would be you know when someone tells me like no I, i'm neutral about things i don't see color i'm like fuck you stop trying to pretend that like or or like especially the old-timey newscasters are like we just give the news we we don't judge or anything i'm like no just just give us your actual biases everyone knows that you are left-leaning and you guys all vote democrat there's there's no secret to it just say it up front and so that we can be like, these are the biases I'm coming from, and now let's have a normal conversation. Yeah, and I want to reread this section of the, the article because that, again, sounds way too simplistic to be doable. Because, like, I A, to... you don't know all your biases, right, and right. me pointing them out to you isn't very helpful 
especially if you're not a rationalist. Yeah, because like I, I have a friend who is a um just right wing ish conservative, and he's uh he's not he's um a lawyer. He's argued before the Supreme Court, which is really cool, and uh he he despises Trump with every fiber of his being. But the thing is, like I always knew that he was kind of to the right, you know. He's socially liberal, but politically, he usually votes to the right. I'm like, okay, I know that about you. We can talk to each other like fucking adults. Some of my most fruitful conversations, I've mentioned this before, were from my roommate through college, or through parts of college. He, he's a never-Trumper, but he's a conservative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, we we were able to have, because, you know, we weren't hiding where we're coming from. Mm-hmm. And it, part of it, for me, and this is what the other thing, too, is, like, sometimes I am coming from nowhere. Like... I, I I now have a political affiliation and I I leaned left before but I'm gonna I'm voting blue no matter what like on everything for the next few elections but yeah, yeah. Um, until Trump gets fucking out until the damage is done or until the damage is fixed yeah. but um the well I'll, I'll get into that later someone's gonna accuse me of being biased and they're probably right and they are well at this point Everyone's but not, not but now I'm owning it yeah um but I don't know it's it's one of those like this is the kind of thing where someone said hey you're privileged you know whatever mm-hmm. and so it's like what do you do with that information? You're like, okay, I'll shut up now. Yeah. And it's like, well, uh, uh, that doesn't seem like the solution either, right? right. Um, it, it could be that you have something valuable to say despite being white guy or whatever your privilege is. Bef- yeah. You know, having having the social ease of being able to uh, get online and say stuff without feeling attacked or something or without worrying about being attacked or whatever it is, right? right. So, like, I don't know. Again, I'm in favor of this. This sounds great, but this that sounds too easy. Or that sounds too... Well, I don't think any of these are, like, solutions. I think they're just steps forward that could help. Yeah. So, if you're declaring where you're coming from, and that's good. But then, of course, too, you've got to be dealing with intellectually honest players. Yeah. You know, Fox News, what's their motto? Um, Fair and balanced. Yeah. uh, It, it's scary. It's weird. But I'm in favor of it. Yeah. Be be straight up. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, if, if I were to come to, especially a politically charged argument, and say, look, here's where I'm coming from. Who's who I voted for? We can get that out of the way. You don't have to like say, "Well, you're just saying that because of this." Mer. And the thing is, it's not like people don't know that Fox News leans hard right. People know MSNBC leans far left. Yeah, I think people is different groups of is is not everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that Fox News is on the right, but how far right they are. You know, like when when Trump got in front of the UN and said, no, "My my administration is going to accomplish more than almost any other," mm-hmm. and he got laugh out loud. A reaction from the from the assembly at the UN. Yeah. Fox News edited that out when they when they aired that. Oh. and so to, to someone who only watches Fox News to see the real clip on Facebook or something, they'd say, "Ah, they're ju- they're editing that in to make Trump look bad," um, which speaks to that you know fracturization that uh, that Scott Adams reality. is going on about. But um, it's I don't know. It's not enough to just declare your bias or even be aware that like your source might be a little biased. I don't know how you check to see how biased your source is. I know I'm digging way too philosophical for 10 p.m. So let's 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 move past it. Okay. Mimetic me or wait, no, I'll do a short one. Uh, reinventing debate is bullet point three. Yeah. Um, separate into sports debates and sense making debates. And I like this idea because I really like sports debates. Uh, I truly enjoy them, but I also realize that they're not actual ways to get to the truth. So it's a sports debate. Sports debate is basically what we see nowadays. It's, you know, people just trying to make their opponent look bad and score points and get the audience to be like, oh, snap, you know? It's like a rap battle for intellectuals. So what's a sense-making debate then to contrast that with? A sense-making debate would be something like uh, an ideological Turing test or uh, the antagonistic collaboration that uh, Scott Alexander just recently hosted four of them. 
uh, gave away prize money for them, and they were all pretty good. Antagonistic collaboration is when two people who have uh, opposing viewpoints on an issue come together to research it, and they put out a, their conclusions, and they will only put out things that both of them agree on. Oh, I read the one on uh, um, mandatory vaccination of kids. Cool. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know there were three more. That sounds yeah. really fruitful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I can dig it. But I guess reinventing debate is to acknowledge what kind of debate you're having. Um, that's fair. Yeah. And say, look, I'm just saying, you know, so I made an effort at having both. Like, I, I'd kind of say, here's where I'm putting on my charity hat. Mm-hmm. And that's me switching to my, my sense-making debate. But a lot, of my, a lot of my points about, especially politics, were sports debates. Yeah. Um, so that's fair. All right, what's the, what's the next one? Next one is memetic mediators. Memetic mediators could be called in for memetic battles where both participants prefer peace to continued civil decay but cannot come to an accord without facilitation. These mediators would require a multitude of tools at their disposal. They would need to be fluent in multiple tribal paradigms and would need to give the impression of fairness. And because each tribe has their own method and claims to truth, memetic mediators would have to be skilled at finding any common ground and building from it. And I think this is probably like the coolest idea, but also the absolute hardest to put into practice because it's going to be really hard to find someone that two groups can both agree on i actually love doing these though this is what i did this is like again i keep bringing up friday's lunch but i like doing the this is this maybe hey this is a good call for rationalists because we're the observer we're one of the observer tribes right? yeah this well, is I mean, what we could do to save the world i don't think i would be very good at it i i tend to I become like emotionally try. invested i i try i can do it for some things but in general there's other topics where I absolutely could not do it, but that's like, what I was gonna say is do it on the topics where you know you'd be good at it because you can acknowledge it yourself. And I and I bet that if you're mediating an argument between me and somebody else, and I'd said you know if you're not being dispassionate uh, and unbiased here, I think you'd be able to say, you're right. I'm gonna sit this one out, or I'll cha- or I'll try and be better or something. Right? In our friend group, I love love Shelly for this, and she's been on the podcast I think once or twice. At least once, hopefully. At least once. That. But she is, oh my God, anytime anything flares up on Facebook and she is involved in it, she's just like, hey guys, here's this person's point of view. Here's this person's point of view. Look how reasonable you both are and it can be about this. And oh my God, she is amazing. I'm like, I wish I could just have you everywhere. That's true. You've done this a few times too. Like when um, during the uh, sensitive oh, with sensitive issues. You and Vivian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, we worked that way for us. Uh, I will say that like since our most people are not in our community. This isn't very useful, but uh, th- I was surprised. The article said that they can't think of any examples of someone like this. And I was like, oh, come on. Have you guys never read the Unit of Caring's Tumblr? The Unit of Caring is amazing. Like more than on, on more than one occasion on this blog, I've called her the best person in the world or at least the best person on the internet. Absolutely think she's the best person on the internet. Just so reasonable and kind-hearted and just she could be a mediator for anyone in my opinion at least anyone in our in our in from the rational side would gladly accept her as a mediator to, with anyone else that's dope as far as i can tell man i haven't actually read that because i'm never on tumblr but i will i've got it open now i'll check it out yeah the, um, one of my favorite like my favorite tumblr period hands down fantastic yeah. i don't know have you seen the one that's uh like just re- repost the uh we rate dogs twitter because <laughs> that one's pretty cool okay um so anyway, you said uh, like Shelly, does she, that so, sucks that I'm missing out on these interactions on Facebook. Maybe there, there so there are some it, things out. There, there, well, I mean, they're really rare. But it would be nice to see you know Kendall and Dark there once in a while. Yeah. yeah. Well, way to go, Shelly. That's that's awesome. I wish uh, if you see any screen caps or something that you can you can share 
uh, if you have to censor names or whatever, not 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 necessarily to the page, but you know, put them, share them with me because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to see them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so there were there were three more, and uh, I didn't actually finish this part. I was running short on time this evening, but um, I've got the notes, so you let me know what I missed. Reclaiming sure. philosophy as a way of life is number five. Yes. And that sounds nicely poetic and and lofty, but good luck with that. Good, you can't. There's no philosophers on the battlefield, dude. I don't know. Like um, stoicism has been had, having quite a comeback lately. That's because we need stoicism, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, for whatever yeah. reason, it's it's kind of being a thing i can dig it okay that's that's a good example i i'm picturing just you know somebody advocating stoicism you know in the like walking across no man's land in world war ii oh oh yeah. right it's like yeah good luck out there yeah. um gray pilling all right I, so i didn't read this so i'll take i your didn't guess. really get what gray pilling is it seemed like basically to be street epistem- uh, street epistemology like socratic questioning of people just asking them why do you think that and you know trying to trying to get them to question their own stuff without being a dick or anything the gray pill is the process of relearning the values and of questioning and doubt after you've been seduced by your answers and certainties and leaving comforting secret societies for continued intellectual growth yeah all that i don't know what that meant basically finding rationality okay <laughs> okay C- come join our secret society for intellect continued intellectual growth yeah everyone who listens gets the in jokes so let's see workshops for de- depolarization Exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, that sounds workshops. That sounds great, but yeah. getting people to, to come. Yeah, yeah. They they give the example of the Open Mind Platform is a psychology based educational platform designed to depolarize campuses, companies, organizations, and communities. And I guess for like if it was a mandatory thing as part of your job or something, it could work. Yeah, I don't actually know anything about it. I don't either. Workshops but would be nice, but again, like getting to people to do them is hard and. I get the feeling forcing people to do them would be the same have the same sort of effect as um sensitivity training. It'd be useless. Yeah. Yeah, you get people to do whatever lo- to say whatever they have to say, check all the right bubbles in the scantron and then just leave. Yeah. So that's why I was um, not entirely enthusiastic about that one. I'm like I don't I don't know if it could happen. But these are helpful things and maybe they are. maybe as we work our way there, you know, this sounds like the kind of nerdy thing a rationalist would be into. I know yeah. I keep putting us at the top of the list, but whatever. <laughs> Since we're not in the intellectual dark web train yet, or the, uh, you know, what are some of the other crazy one, other ones on this list? Ah, eh, forget it. Um, yeah, fingers crossed. You know, this might be the cool thing to do, like, maybe if you're in college or something, because there's already a bunch of, you know, meeting places and communities like that. Yeah. It's tough, because if you're the only one attending these, you know, like, I can imagine going to see a speaker you disagree with or something. Yeah. But if you're the only one going, then you're just suffering from it, and it's not making society any better, right? And you could try and learn and become less polarized that way, but I don't know. Well, that that sounds like a stretch goal. Mm. I can see why you put those last three in a separate category. Did we want to cover our three less wrong posts tonight? Or have we been oh, at it for two and a half so hours late. already? Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll start our less wrong posts next week. Okay. Next episode. I was but really excited about them too. But what if yeah, we what if we now. do in advance tell people which ones we're gonna talk no well, Oh yeah, matter. no, actually it's a good idea in yeah. case they want to read two. Yeah, if you want if you want to read ahead. All right. So instead of doing uh, AI rationale instead of doing rationality AI to zombies, uh, we are actually going to be reading the original sequences in the order they were posted. Uh, and you decided that. Yes, I'm I curi- did. Curious why? Because that was the way I read them. That's fair. Yeah. Enough said. Yeah. Why, why go for the the organized and refurbished version when you can get the old model that you know right. runs on diesel? Uh, this right. is like being you know just slightly post Council of Nicaea and being like, yeah, I see you got a nice cannon over there, but fuck you, I like all my original 117 <laughs> apocryphal yeah books of the Bible. Thank you. That's it. There wasn't much cut to put in rationality as zombies. It was just sorted better. It was sorted uh, better. It was, there was some cutting, too. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. So the first three essays we read, which you can find on lesswrong.com under the sequences, 
Uh, it's kind of difficult because, yeah, the sequences takes you to AI ration, uh, rationality, AI to zombies. Uh, there, there is a resource that posts uh, all of the less wrong posts in the order that they were originally posted and actually includes the ones put out by other people too, not just Eliezer, but nice. we're only going to be reading Eliezer's ones. Anyways, I'll put a link up to that, but we will also link the first three less wrong posts ever posted, which we will talk about in our next episode. They are The Martial Art of Rationality, Why Truth, and What's a Bias Again? The and separated posts two and three. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll have links to those on our website, um, Conspiracy, com. And so you can go to them straight from there um, or just find a way to read them on your own. Yeah. But they were, they were yeah, good posts. We're going to be reading through this thing. Totally. And if you just Google the first one, martial art of the martial art of rationality and click next post, next post, it takes you to the next ones in the right order. So Cool. I think I'm about done unless you wanted to pitch what video game you were playing lately. Oh, yeah, right. I, I did want to do that. Um, so since you pitched one last time, I was like, oh, yeah, I got to talk about this video game. There's a really fucking cool video game called Soma. It's uh, a first-person game, and the tutorial part starts out like more or less modern day, maybe five years in the future. Uh, your guy has a brain injury, and he's going in for some treatment. And then, uh, like, y you wake up after the treatment, and you're, like, in a uh, bunker under the ocean. The thing is overrun with, uh, not zombies, but, like, machine, mindless, destroying things. And it's, it turns into a survival horror game from there. Uh, but and it's one of the survival horrors where you don't get weapons. You get to run away from the big thing before it kills you, and then solve puzzles and try to not die. Uh, so it's first of all, it was I. I thought it was really fucking well done as a horror game. There were a number of times where I was like actually scared. I had physical reactions, you know, which just does not happen anymore. I I get the feeling I'm jaded enough that. That was that was really well done. That I actually had those reactions, and I would have to stop playing the game for a bit. Oh, you got to play like Outlast or something with the lights off and the volume up. Is okay. The, I I played like half an hour of that game. I can watch playthroughs. That's fine. Yeah. But like, uh, I don't play a lot of horror games. Mm -hmm. and I think because I I get pretty into it. Okay. And I get I I get into all the games and stuff. So you know if there's a if there's a jump scare or like even a loud thing you know when i was playing horizon zero dawn something snuck up to me i'd jump in my seat okay uh, i'm like a horror game and a good horror game does what this game does like you said there's no weapons uh or you know if if, if there are weapons ammo's limited mm -hmm. um it's hard to find you know they're brittle weapons aren't they don't get op until the end of the game if they get op ever there's never a sense that like all right i finally got all the shit i need to be safe right you're like you're always you're, you're always stressed out well this game was interesting because there is safe periods and uh dangerous or safe spots and dangerous spots that you alternate between so yeah you get a break between every moment of mind-bending terror then after that there's like a level where you get more of the storyline and you talk to people and that's where like what i really loved about this game uh it is super transhumanist almost i mean it's a horror transhumanism but it is at the point where like it tackles issues of identity and who you are once you're uploaded and what does it mean to have these memories and what does it mean to be interacting with non-human intelligences that don't have the values you think they have at first it's i don't want to spoil too much about this because saying much of anything is very spoilery but yeah it's very transhumanist where you uh you get to make 
deal with the the ethical issues that we sometimes have to deal with or that we never have to deal with in real life but you know as transhumanist thought experiments that we sometimes run across did you read uh dan dennett's where am i yes it's there's there's a component to that game that's a lot like that that stuck with me i watched this playthrough years ago oh of soma yeah oh cool and i because i never played it but if if anyone wants i'll link to the playthrough of this youtube uh youtuber who does playthroughs that i really like Mm -hmm. um Back when I was watching, he had like 300 subscribers or less. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned this to you and Yash that, oh, when you told me about this game, yeah. Um, for whatever reason, Xbox threw out like random pointless achievement. Like you don't get any points for the yeah. achievement yeah, yeah. when you're just doing things that aren't games. And one of them was, uh, it was like indie guy or something, indie indie viewer. Watch three hours of YouTube videos that have less than 300 views or something. <laughs> and uh, Nice. And so Marshall Dyer does these playthroughs and he's just got this nice gentle voice and he, he talks about what he's doing. If he's doing something that, you know, is that he's, he talks through his thought process. He doesn't have a YouTube voice. He doesn't say, be sure to smash that like and subscribe button. Like we're about to at the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, it, anyway, it, and you know, no floating head it's, and then he'll quietly do the parts that, you know, are supposed to be quiet. And he'll talk the parts where he's, you know, inventory managing or something or whatever. Cool. Um, anyway, give it a shot. If you want to watch it, if you want to play it, it's something great to play too. Yeah. But if you're like me and don't play horror games, but just watch them, this sounds fun. Cool. So yeah, I think that's all we got for today. Cool. Yeah. Oh, we got to thank a patron. Let me ask you real quick. And we'll like put this next part only into the uh, Patreon supported part because it's also spoilers for the game. Do you want to uh, save this after? After we close the episode, and eh, doesn't matter. I'll, I'll I'll chop it out. I can I can handle it. No, oh, uh, that's fine. Do you want me to? Nope. If, keep it going. Okay. All right. Uh, but yeah, the, this next part only for Patreon subscribers. So subscribe to Patreon. Um. Oh yeah, we can we can let's let's plug that really quick. Oh okay. Before I forget, so we have a Patreon account. Yes, we do. Patreon. Just search the Beijing Conspiracy. You're welcome to support us. It's not required. If it's anything like a financial hardship, or you'll even notice the loss, don't. Yeah. But if you have a free buck a month or, you know, whatever, by all means, you're welcome to. Uh, and it really it, means a lot to us. It does. And it, 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 you know, I was thinking about this just yesterday that, you know, you put up all the forward costs for the show, which included the time to build the website, the hosting for like the first year. Right. You bought the mics. Um, you bought the the mic. Uh, you bought all the, equi- the equipment, mm-hmm. um, the mixer. Um, so you just recouped your costs for that like last year. Right. Um, so... Or, yeah, last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, and, you know, down the road, we could get better mics. We could do um, whatever you guys think we could do with this. Uh, it's not like a, a big money in our pocket kind of thing. It's just something to make this. Um, it feels nice to be able to go out to dinner a few times a year on, on like, hey, this is Bayesian conspiracy money. Yeah. Or, you know, one of these days, maybe we'll want a guest who wants money or something like oh, that, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe they have a time budget. I don't know. But, yeah. uh Whatever it is, so we're we're trying to to make it useful, not just make it make give you more than just feel goods for being a patron supporter. So, yeah. um, we do have some patron only content out there. Um, usually just us chatting about random stuff. Yeah, my it's goal not is much, down, but we're gonna start getting more. Yeah, and down the road, I want to add some more like interesting conversations. I don't think we'll get to the point where we ever do full episodes that are just patron only. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we'll start doing things where patrons get to vote on the next episode or something. Um, cool. Or or at least put out ideas. You know, we take them from Reddit and stuff now too, but. Uh, maybe we'll we'll highly prioritize the ones from Patreon. Um, so uh, those are things that exist. If you don't feel like doing Patreon, or if you already do, uh, that's awesome. We appreciate it. And uh, there is um, iTunes. You can like yeah. an episode. You can like the show there. Leave a review. Tell other um, people about the episodes. That also helps. Yeah, just you know, if you think this is valuable to you, and you think that there's anybody that you think it might be valuable to us or other resources, rationally speaking, is another good podcast. It's not. 
the same exact thing. It's not rationality with a capital R, but mm-hmm. it's it's rationality adjacent. Yeah. Um, you know, the reason that I think I wanted to do this show was that there isn't really anything like a rationality podcast that I could find. At least there wasn't two or three, two or three years ago. So, mm-hmm. um, in any case, now I'm rambling. But okay. thank you. We really like our listeners, and I can tell that I'm rambling. So. And this episode, we in particular like... Dun, dun, dun. Thank you uh, to our uh, call-out Patreon supporter this month, or this episode, uh, Crystal. Thanks a lot. Fuck yeah, Crystal! You know what we might actually do one of these days? Mm. Uh, our sound engineer got busy with a paying job, yeah. and uh, we've been editing the last few ones, which is time-intensive and, oh my God. and uh, doesn't sound as good. Oh, so maybe we could actually pay a real person to do this for us one of these days we might pay a real person to do oh this oh my god that'd be so nice i'll look into what the costs are oh. I, I want you know we don't need a we don't need a an amazing sound engineer to add effects and do this and that but you yeah. know something to clean this up and save us four hours a week yeah four or five or six it seems like yeah so that'd be um, really cool yeah anyway so the reason i brought up all the patreon stuff was because we are going to go into some patreon only content which maybe we'll start announcing when we do that all right so all of that last part uh, up until the daphne i think should go into the um the listen the patreon supporter thing sounds good cool all right thank you for listening bye thanks bye